Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm supposed like to take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. I be running, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Okay, so we have not done a home team. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Discussing issues for a couple days. We had Ryan Garcia and Trevor Bauer this week. Today, we're back in town from San Antonio. we got a lot of stories to cover. We also have a special guest here today. It always helps when you got a special guest who's super confident, likes a good fight. It's almost as if she wants a debate. She wants a fight. And uh, that's Bridget Gabriel, which you all have seen her before. If you go online, she's got clips with 18 million views, 20 million views. She's gone viral many different times. Let me properly introduce her background. Lebanese-American author, speaker, and founder of ACT for America, a vocal critic of Islam. So some of you that are watching, because we have a Muslim community that watches this podcast, take a deep breath. It's okay, because we're going to always have people on the other side as well. Just brace for impact. Particularly, it's radical interpretations. Bridget draws an experience from the Lebanese Civil War and her Christian upbringing to inform her views. She has spoken before the United Nations, the Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, members of British Parliament, House of Commons, members of United Congress, Joint Forces of Staff College, U.S. Special Forces Command, and FBI, as well as many others. She also written a book called Because They Hate, uh, Reach Number 12 on New York Times bestsellers list. For political books, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, your, your story is awesome. And especially for a time like this, I'm sure we're going to get into some. We got a lot of issues to go through. But we'll also talk about some of the, you know, uh, things that's gone on in the last, since October 7th, which has been absolutely wild, what's been going on, a lot of debates. We had Bassem Yosef on, uh, uh, I think, a few weeks ago here. My him, best friend. him and Adam had a great uh, civil <laughs> conversation name-calling, one called the other one intellectually lazy, the other one called the other one uh, racist? Race, or, race, racist undertones. Yeah, race, race. It's a new Adam's new band. <laughs> but they, what, we, we, we well, left we hugging. hugging the yeah, and it was great. That's, but that's, by the way, let's pronounce, 
is Brigitte. Brigitte. It's Brigitte. Brigitte. It's Lebanese. Lebanese. It's got attitude. Yeah. It has a little bit. I know, apparently a Bridget. You are Brigitte. Brigitte. That's right. We had, we had a French lady that used to be one of my agents. Her name was Brigitte Leton. Yes. She would always correct me. It's not Bridget. It's Brigitte. Brigitte, Brigitte Leton. I said, okay, relax. You've told many a stories about this lady, Brigitte. I yes, I have. That's a very different story. Okay, yeah. so before we get into it, let me kind of give you guys what things we're going to be covering today. Stories. Um, one, there's a lot of things going on with Iran. Shadow war with Iran risks turning into a direct conflict. That's a Wall Street Journal story. We'll talk about that. Iran-backed uh, Iraqi militia says, check this out, after they did what they did to injure dozens of our soldiers and kill three of them, they said they have decided to sp- suspend attacks on U.S. forces. How kind of them yeah. to publicly announce that we, you know, we've decided to suspend it. So you, you listen, relax, America. Please don't do anything because we have chosen to suspend our attacks and it's not looking too pretty there. They know we're uh, pissed. Yes. James O'Keefe dresses as a, I mean, listen, good for him. He, he could have made it in Hollywood. He dresses like a gay single man mm-hmm. and goes out and meets with, what's his name, Rob? Uh, Charlie Crager, I want to say. He's one of yeah. the uh, a national security advisors council, and he pretty much breaks down what's going on on the inside with what's going to happen next with Barack Obama. Yeah, that's not Barack Obama, Joe Biden. Right. He's a cybersecurity political analyst and foreign affairs desk officer in the executive office at the White House. Anyways, it's a very interesting. He hair, dyes his hair, has got these yeah. fake glasses, talks with an accent. We'll play a clip of it. That's Very interesting. His move, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. He pretends to I know. be. He does it with the girls yeah. that go on a date and he does it with what? his. We had a... dinner the night before. He's like, I got to wake up early. I got to go get a disguise. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'll tell you. You'll find great, out. Oh, great. <laughs> Zuckerberg gets destroyed. Zuckerberg. And this was a rough last uh, 24 hours for him. I'm sure he saw it. And whether it was look, Kennedy. He had a perm. He had a perm. Maybe you'll comment on the perm. But <laughs> there's a lot of things to talk about on what happened there because it's. it's um, it's problematic, and it's not going away. Uh, New York Community Bank Corp stock plunges 38%. Uh, another one of uh, fears of uh, reigniting fears of regional banks going out and people are taking their money out. Fed Jerome Powell says March rate cuts is unlikely. So the market panics. Dow drops 300 points. NASDAQ drops 2%. We'll talk about that. Gavin Newsom, guys, if you see the Zoom, he did not know somebody was recording it. When you watch the Zoom, you're going to think this is out of a movie, and it's fake, but it's not. He's talking about how somebody is stealing something in front of him, and he's asking the employee, like, how come you're not stopping him? He says, well, because our governor came out with certain policies. You haven't seen this. I have not seen oh, this Oh, you're going to pull it. This doesn't look real when I you see it. I can't wait to naturally And somebody react to recorded this. it off a phone while he's saying this. Oh, the wow. best. Have you seen this yet? No. It's the wild best. when you see this. Best. We'll all have a natural reaction to it. Denny's. Closes Oakland restaurant after 54 years of its soaring crime. And this happened right after In-N-Out closed in Oakland as well. Wonder why. And Aina Presley claims Walgreens is racist, folks. It's just for closing stores. Yeah. So they're absolutely racist. Uh, I never knew. Next time I go to Walgreens, I'm going to go, did you guys know you guys were racist? I'm going to ask the cashier. So racist. Such a racist organization, according to Aina Presley. We'll talk about that. The word is capitalist. Yes. So police in sanctuary cities report significant increase in crime tied to illegal aliens released by Biden. And then we, we got a city that says, uh, we want migrants. Please come to us. Wait oh, to see what the city send is. Send them. Send them. Yes, send exactly. Them. <laughs> Billionaire Peter Thiel, bankrolling. Very creative idea. I kind of, there's something about this that's trollish. 
and it's funny, but I like it. Billionaire Peter Thiel bankrolling Olympics, except only for people who use steroids. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Hey, that- we don't drug test. You do steroids, come here. Computer, we want to know what like people Olympics? Insane angle to take Dude, because now, can you imagine how weird that is? Only a billionaire would do something like that. The Russians. And so, yeah, let's see what's going to happen. Billionaire Ken Griffin stops contributions to Harvard calls current students whiny snowflakes, very offensive, UPS to cut 12,000 jobs, and mandate return to office five days a week. I have some thoughts on that. That's a Wall Street Journal story. TikTok has lost music from Taylor Swift. Ca- catastrophic. I know you were hurt by this. Oh. <laughs> they, they removed music from Taylor Swift and amid a, a fight with the industry's most powerful record label. We'll learn more about that. And then one school in Connecticut decided to mandate tampon dispensers and his high school kid gets so pissed, comes and rips it apart within 20 minutes. Great. Maybe some call him a hero, but it is what Good. it is. Tico, is that you? <clears throat> you know, that's a lot of testosterone. Go- Governor, off the- Governor Kathy Hochul from New York suggests, suggests a suggestion, me- gentle suggestion, deporting migrants who beat cops. Maybe it's a good what? idea. It's illegal migrants who beat what cops. A, she's racist, yeah. too. And then anyways, we got a few other stories. Migrant flipping off after beating up cops from Venezuela. You got a video. We'll show that. Uh, and there's a couple other videos we'll show you as well. But mother, puberty blocker. But before we get into all these stories, Brigitte, please, for someone like you, maybe give your background of where you – I was raised in Iran. I lived there 10 years, and then I escaped – with my family, went to Germany. We lived at a refugee camp for a year and a half, and then we came here on November 28, 1990. So I was there experiencing what it's like when people are marching, saying, mad, bad, Omrika, death upon America. You, you, when you experience it, it's going to stay with you for a long time to come, yeah. especially when you're a kid. Maybe share with the audience a little bit about your background and what, what the media is getting wrong, why some young people in America are confused, you know, gays for Gaza. There's a lot of organizations that seem like they're noble they're doing the right thing. They feel like they're doing the right thing between Israel, Hamas, and Palestine. But where are people getting it wrong? So a little bit about your background and where people are getting it wrong with what's going on today. Well, I want to f- first follow up on what you said, that you grew up hearing death to America. Yes. And when you hear that, it leaves an impression on you that you can never forget. Absolutely. The impression that it leaves is not the words. It's the hatred that you, the hatred you have witnessed. It's what you saw that you recognized, your good soul recognized, because we're all born with good souls. We are all born pure clear, no hatred, no bigotry as children. Everything else is dumped into us. So when you grow up as a child watching that and you think to yourself, I don't like that. My spirit doesn't like that. That's what you remember. And that's when you grow up and you realize what you saw. Now I know a name for it. It's called evil. When you hate someone so much that you want to kill them, even though you don't know them, you think to yourself, how can somebody hate Mm. like that? I don't I want to stay away from that. As a matter of fact, I chose to fight that because that affected your life. That affected my life. Mm -hmm. In my case, I was born as an only child to a Lebanese businessman. My father had a long career with the government. He retired, took all his money, his retirement, built real estate with it. So I was born into a very comfortable life. My father owned the biggest, most fanciest restaurant in southern Lebanon. People used to drive hours to get to it. So I was raised meeting the community, hearing people. My father had the first television set in our restaurant. <laughs> first TV set, black By the way, that's a very big deal. I'm telling you, oh. when you can say that, 
that's a very big People deal. People weren't going there to eat. They were going there to watch TV. It was yeah. a coming attraction. My father was very smart. <laughs> so people would drive. So the whole town, the whole community would be at the restaurant. And what did I hear? Politics. You know, before we started the show, we were talking about your mm-hmm. kids. Kids, yeah. And, and your, your child's opinion at 11 years very old. Very strong. Of politics. Yes. So I grew up in a restaurant hearing my parents and all the tables around every night talking politics, listening to the news. And of course, back in the old days, you remember, it was what, two, three TV stations? That was it. There was no cable. So when the news came on, everybody watched the news. So this is the environment that I grew up in. So I grew up in a time where Lebanon was prosperous. Lebanon was Paris of the Middle East. You know, we had, we were very open-minded. You know, we were a majority Christian country. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Christians in Lebanon used to be over almost 70% um, when I was born, you know, when, when Lebanon got it. Independence, and this is why we have the government divided very fairly. You know, because as Christians, we want to be fair. So we have the president has to be a Maronite, the 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 Secretary of State has to be a Sunni, so and so has to be a Shiite. So everything was divided, so we don't offend everybody, and everybody can feel included. Mm. And this is a great republic. Lebanon is a republic, exactly like the United States, which stand in in such stark contrast when you look at the whole Middle East. You've got Israel as a Jewish state. You've got Lebanon. A republic just like America in a sea of, of what I call tribes with flags. Because when you look at Arabic countries, they're tribes with flags. You can identify every country with one royal family or one man, one man regime. So we were open minded, we were fair, we were welcoming, we, you know, everybody wanted to come and party in Lebanon. Not just Middle Easterners, but people from all over the world Sophia Loren, Frank Sinatra. It was the hub to, to vacation. Lebanese are very good in business, as you know, Middle Easterns. Um, Middle Eastern Christians are highly educated. We're very good in business. You know, we're in the tip of Phoenicia, you know, at the port, doing commerce all along. Um, Beirut became Paris of the Middle East, the banking capital of the Middle East. So that's the country in which I was born. I remember going with my parents as a child to Casino du Liban, uh, where, you know, we would attend the concerts and the world singers coming. So that was my life. Life was good. Things began to change when I, was, when I was about nine years old. That's when we started importing Palestinian refugees into the country. Actually, Lebanon accepted a third wave of Palestinian refugees while none of the other countries wanted them. This is after King Hussein, after Black September, kicked them out when they tried to overthrow the king. He kicked them out. From Jordan. Um, from Jordan. Most people don't know this, so tell That's them where right. they came from. They came from Jordan after uh, they tried to overthrow the king, basically. Mm -hmm. And King Hussein literally killed them, bulldozed them, 30,000 of them. And the rest of them came to Lebanon. We accepted them. And I remember watching the evening news and all these Palestinian cars, you know, driving in to Lebanon. And they would stop at my father. My father would give them free food, you know, on the restaurant trying to help people. This is in the, what, early 70s? Right, 75, 74, 75. Got it. And Everything you're saying, it's pretty much identical to what Iran was in the early 70s, mid-70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Per- this, by the way, this is it. When she says per- Beirut was Paris, the Middle East, yeah. you, you look yeah. at that picture, you wouldn't think that's the Middle East. You, yeah. you would no. think a different place, even when you go through some of the pictures. Please and, and continue. People don't realize, you know, people think, you know, the Middle East is desert. 
Lebanon is mountains and beaches. You can be skiing in the morning and two hours later swimming in the Mediterranean. I think the first time in my life I saw a camel was when I moved to Jerusalem and lived in Jerusalem. <laughs> we don't have any desert. You know, we're like the Switzerland of the Middle yeah. East. That's why they call yeah. it that. So when I was around nine years old, we stopped traveling. And I would ask, because we used to go to Beirut. I'm an only child, by the way. I don't have any sisters and brothers. My parents were married for a very long time. They couldn't have any children. I'm finally, boom, my father is 60 years old. My father, my mother is 55. I pop into the family. Uh-huh. How old was your mom? 55. She gave birth to you at 55? She got pregnant at 54. She went to the Gangster. doctor. I start my book because they hate with the scene. My mother goes to the doctor. She thought she had cancer because her stomach is getting bigger, harder. What else <laughs> no could you have? No way. So she goes to the doctor Brigitte. and the doctor says, they do blood work and the doctor says, the you're going to have a baby in two months. Oh Get my God. out of here. Is this some sort so of world father, record? So my father put her a car, you know, the old days men, this, they were not involved in business, shipped her off to the nearest hospital, which was two hours away. There he goes. She goes there. I didn't have a name for five days. And because they didn't know if I'm going to be alive or dead or what's going to happen to me, you know. Um, so anyway, they come home. And so that's, that's, I was a gift to my parents. I was the apple of their eyes. I They gave me everything they could ever give me. You know, they were elderly. So they looked at me at this miracle in their lives. They worshipped me. And I know what love is. I, I, I don't need, no matter what happens to me in life, this is why I'm so strong when I fight. Because I have experienced love so deep, so unconditional. A belief that I can do anything I put my mind to. I was so adored by my parents that till today they are the driving force in everything I do. I live, I breathe to honor them. Um, by the way, my parents... Passed away. I was 22 years old. I became an orphan. They passed away within nine months of each other. And I have them both buried with Oscar Schindler on Mount Zion. If you have ever visited Oscar Schindler's grave, you had walked by my parents' grave. Wow. But most people don't know that. But back to my uh, upbringing. So when I was around nine years old, so being, uh, we lived in South Lebanon, me and my parents, two elderly people, very boring, you know. Every holiday, we would drive down to Beirut, which was about a two-hour drive from the mountains. I lived in the mountains in Marjayoun. We would drive to Beirut to be with my family for Christmas or, you know, um, Easter and all that. And we stopped traveling. And I would ask my father, how come we're not going to Beirut for Christmas Mm -hmm. or Easter? Mm -hmm. And they would say to me, well, you know, we decided to stay home um, this year, which was strange for me as a child. Where later I learned why, as I got a little bit older, that's when Palestinians put their heads together with the Muslims in Lebanon and they started stopping Christian cars traveling. They would set up fly-by-night checkpoint. And they would get people out of their cars and ask them for their IDs. Well, in Lebanon, our religion is written on our national ID. You are either a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jew. If you have ever held a Middle Eastern ID, um, you know, our religion is on our ID. And when they would see that this is a Christian family traveling, they would get them out of the car and shoot them in cold blood. So the word traveled fast. So we Christians became prisoners in our towns and our communities. That's why we stopped traveling. Actually, Tom Friedman promotes it in in his book, From Beirut to Jerusalem. He called it identity killing Mm. at the time. So he talks about it in his book. By 1975... They had organized the Palestinians and the Muslims. Uh, they created what they called Jaish Lebanon al Arabi, the Arabic Lebanese army. And, you know, uh, and, and the Middle East 
Christians are not considered Arabs, at least where I come from. You know, we were Phoenicians. It's the Muslims, they're known as Arabs. So they created Jaysh Libnain al-Arabi, and they started attacking the Christians in Lebanon because they wanted to create a base from which to fight Israel, kill the Jews, and drive them into the sea. And they wanted to use Lebanese democracy, mm. open-mindedness, fairness, tolerance, live and let live type mentality to do that. Something they couldn't do in Jordan because of the dictatorship of the king. But they they were able to do it in Lebanon. My town was on the border with Israel. So while they were trying to take over my town, they had to take over the military base in my town above my home, which was about 50 yards from my home uh, on top of the hill. And bombing the military base, trying to take it over, they missed the military base and 14 rockets exploded in my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded. My 9-11 happened to me in 1975. I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months. You know, when I was watching the images of the World Trade Center on 9-11 come down and, you know, <laughs> people screaming for their loved ones and, and, and people calling their loved ones names and, and, and you see the smoke on the screen, I could smell that smoke. I know exactly what that smells like. I could hear my parents calling my name as I was pinned under a wall looking for me. Uh, my father became deaf, so he couldn't hear my screams when I was screaming because the bombs blew up his eardrums. So from the age of 10 on, anytime I needed to communicate with my father, I had to shout in order for him to hear me. I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months. And as I went from one surgery to another, hooked up with blood bag on one hand, giving me blood and another IV and going from one surgery to another, I would ask my father, why did they do this to us? And my father would tell me, because we are Christians, we are considered infidels, and they want to kill us. So I knew that I am wanted dead at the age of 10 simply because I happened to be born mm -hmm. as a Christian and live in a Christian town. Whether I practiced my faith or not, it was irrelevant. And this is something Americans cannot understand. You know, they understand that Judaism Jews are a race. But in the Middle East, if you are a Christian, you are in that block of people. You are like put in a compartment. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist Christian. I know this is, sounds so weird to, to Americans listening to this, but we are persecuted because of the group that we are, like the Yazidis, like, like all the minority groups in the Middle East. I ended up coming back home after two and a half months. But my home was no longer the home I left. Now, remember, I was raised in a beautiful home. I was living the Lebanese dream. I had a chauffeur to drive me to school. We had a, 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 a housekeeper. We had a maid. Our life turned upside down. Two days before our house was bombed, my father wanted to bring us to America. So he goes to the bank in Beirut because the banks were being robbed, bombed. God knows what was going to happen. My father withdrew his life savings and banknotes from Lebanon to bring us to America Two days later, my father's money was burned to ashes. Jeez. We went from living a wonderful life to losing it all. My father at that time was 70 years old. You don't start over mm. when you're 70 years wow. old. So we end up living in a bomb shelter. So eight by 10 room, underground, no electricity, no water, and very little food. When we went into the bomb shelter, ironically, the bomb shelter was built... 
by money given to, a part of it by money given to my father from the Lebanese government to protect us from Israel because supposedly the barbaric Israeli army is going to come slaughter us and therefore all people in South Lebanon, the money said, okay, we give you half, you pay half, you build bomb shelters because the Jews are going to come kill you. That's the bomb shelter I ended up living in. We go into the bomb shelter and we thought it's going to be two weeks. My father being a restaurateur, the bomb shelter was right behind the restaurant. That's where he store all the liqueur and the wine, you know, underground, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. So I remember the first two weeks we slept on boxes, these huge boxes that came to our restaurant, you know, with big either machine, fridge box, mm-hmm. you know, or, mm-hmm. or whatever stuff for that thing. We put a blanket on top of it. We put a, uh, a pillow, another blanket. And I remember sleeping on a box filled with coal, you know, the black coal that mm-hmm. you used to charcoal to grill, shish kebabs, yeah. you know. Hoka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So I slept in that and we thought, ah, it's going to be a matter of, you know, a couple days, yeah, a couple weeks. The whole world is going to wake up and see what's happening to the Christian in Lebanon, everybody's going to come save the Christians. One week went by, two weeks went by, one month went by, two months went by, one year went by. Obviously, by that time, we had brought in some mattresses, um, put them on the floor of our bomb shelter, and that's where we slept. And the world forgot about us. The world forgot about us. And to get some food, my mother and I would, would, would crawl under bombs falling off because my father, remember, he can't hear. So he cannot duck when to hear the bomb zzz, boom, here before it explodes. So when we would hear the whiz, we know to duck. Mm-hmm. And so my mother and I would go out and dig for dandelion. It was the only greenery we had to eat. Uh, for food, we had stored like dried chickpeas and dried beans and rice. So we, we could manage with that oil, anything my mother. My mother would soak the chickpeas overnight. And because they had bugs in them, my job was with a pin to dig the bug out, put it on the side, put the chickpea in here. And that's how I killed the time. That's how we cooked our food. And, you know, that that was the only greenery we had to eat when we would go out and dig for dandelions. To get some water, we would crawl under snipers' bullets. And we were surrounded by Islamic snipers and Palestinians who surrounded our town, the hills around our town. And every day we leave our bomb shelter to get some water. My mother and I and my father would say our last goodbyes because we did not know if we're going to come back dead or alive. And we would hug. And it was every single day you did the same thing and it became like the way of living. Like routine. Routine. We would go, we would get some water from a nearby spring, and then we would come back. And this became my existence. I remember as a child, as I was growing up as a teenager, you know, we didn't have any clothing. I was growing up as a girl. And I remember my mother, as my foot started growing from my shoes, she would cut the front of my shoes. And she would say, look, mommy, now they are like sandals. So my toes can stick out mm-hmm. because my foot. And she did not want me walking bare feet on the bomb shelter. And she would cut my pajama pants because I grew taller. And she would cut them. And she said, look, they are called Bermuda, Bermuda shorts. Mm-hmm. And, and she would cut the sleeves. So I would grow into my clothes. And I remember laying on the bed and... Lice, because when you sleep on the floor, your head gets invested in lice. I know this is uncomfortable conversation in the West. People cannot imagine looking at Brigitte Gabrielle and imagining Brigitte Gabrielle as a child sleeping on the floor with lice on her head. And I remember my mother would take kerosene or benzene or, you know, or mazout, and she would dip it and she would dip it because the, the, the lice would Relief, die from yeah. the fume. And I remember sitting and my mother's combing my hair and saying, it's OK, honey, when we get some water, we can wash it. And this was my existence. And I remember 
after years, you know, it becomes the norm because you don't know anything any better. We didn't go to school for two years. No studying. Everybody was in the bomb shelter. And um, I remember, you know, we just killed the time just sitting, talking with each other. And after a while, there's not much you can talk about. And um, I remember at the age of 13, we heard from uh, one of our militia, Christian men stopped by because, you know, we were a very small town. And he said, look, we heard a lot of chatter on the radio, and I don't think we're going to last tonight. He said, they're going to attack our town tonight. And if I don't see you tomorrow, I wish you a merciful death. <sighs> and I remember, um, you know, he left. And I remember my mother combing my long black hair. And I dressed in my Easter dress, my Sunday best. Because, you know, you get one Easter dress, and that's you know, like your whole summer dress for the summertime. And, and it was b- blue and white. And blue flowers with a white ba- on, on white background. And I remember she was tying the, the, the belt in the back, making a bow. And I remember she tied the white ribbon in my hair. And I'm sobbing. I don't want to die. Please, I don't want to die. Do something. How old are you at this time? 13. Because I wanted to look pretty when I am dead, knowing that when they come to slaughter me, there would be no one to bury me. And I'm dressing, getting all dressed up, and I'm saying, please do something. I don't want to die. Please, I'm only 13. And there was nothing my mother could say to me. And I remember sitting in the corner of our bomb shelter. And my my parents were very devout Christians. And my father opened up the Bible, his prayer book, and he started reading from Psalms. I shall walk into the valley of death and fear no evil, for thou art with me. And my parents said to me, when they come to slaughter us tonight... We will create a distraction. We live the long life. You are a young child. We'll create a distraction, and you just run towards Israel and don't look back. Run as fast as you can. We lived five kilometers from the Israeli border. So from my house, you can look at Betula. And we knew if we go to the Jews and beg for help, the Jews are not going to slaughter us because we had more shared values with them than we had with the Muslims. Few people from my town went to Israel and told them, look, we're surrounded to be slaughtered. We're not going to last. We need your help. That night, Israel came in physically into Lebanon. Thankfully, I didn't have to make the decision to run to Israel because that's when Israel came in physically into Lebanon in Operation Litani in 1978 and established the security zone in southern Lebanon that everybody screams, oh, occupied territory. No, it wasn't. We begged Israel to come save us. Israel comes in, sets up artillery bases around the hills of our town and our area to protect us. And this is how we ended up surviving for another five years. And I remember at that time we started going to school. They opened up the school. So because, you know, education is very important for people in the Judeo-Christian world. Mm And so I go to school, so they cramped two years in one. So for two years, we went to school nonstop. So I did sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, all in two years, directly one after another. You're living in Lebanon at this point or in, in Israel? Lebanon, in Lebanon, still in the bomb shelter. Okay. So we were picked up many days in a tank, you know, those big tanks with the cannon on the front. You can fit 18 children in that tank. And sometimes I was brought back from school in that tank or taken to school in that tank. And many days when we are at school, the principal would run in. So the school was the first floor of the building. So all the kids were crammed into the first floor because it was like a shelter. If a bomb falls, you know, it's like a shelter. And many days the principal would storm through the hallway running, get out, get out, get out. You've got 15 minutes to get home. Everybody's school, you know, uh, leave. And we would jump up. Pick up our books, grab them, 
We don't even have to say a word to our teacher and everybody runs out. So we lived in a, in, in a house. There was no school buses. Everybody walked to school and we would run. And many days I barely made it home to my bomb shelter before the bombing. And I remember hiding in a ditch and using my books, you know, so I'm carrying, you know, all these books. I've got history books, whatever on my head to protect me from the tra- shrapnels. Mm. So I would hear, Bzzz! I would duck. The shrapnels will fall. I would put this over my head, wait until all the shrapnels fell off and I would run. Back to the shop. Brigitte, for, for context, who's fighting who? Is this Hezbollah? Is this the Muslim no, Brotherhood? Hezbollah was is this not... the IDF? Who's fighting exactly? Hezbollah wasn't created at that time. This is the combined army of Palestinians with Muslims in Lebanon fighting for the Palestinian cause. And they were joined by people from all over the Middle East. We had Muslims fighting in Lebanon from Syria, from Iran, from Egypt, from Djibouti. We had people, we had black people, and we don't have black people in Lebanon. So we had African-Americans, you know, black people on drugs who would be running towards you with bullets. They won't even stop. They had them drugged out. That's who was fighting in Lebanon. Fighting for who, though? Fighting against what? The Christians who are trying to protect their democracy saying we do not want a war, get out of our country, give us back our country, and with the Palestinians trying to create a base, a hub from which to fight Israel. Because by 1982, when Israel invaded Lebanon, Syria was shelling Israel out of Lebanon using Lebanese territories, calling it the Lebanese resistance. The Lebanese had nothing to do with it. And the At Golan least, Heights. And, yeah, that's right, from, mm-hmm. from uh, the towns in Lebanon, to the point where all the northern Israeli towns were living in bomb shelters just like us. In the war, you know, before I get to that, people ask me, how did you learn English in a bomb shelter? So here's an interesting story. You'd appreciate that because, you know, we are an immigrant here, at least most of us, you know. So you'd appreciate the tenacity, you know, when we put our mind to something. So after a few years in the bomb shelter, my, we figured out or my father was told that if you can operate black and white television, small black and white TV on a car battery. So my father would plug the TV into the car battery that we brought into the bomb shelter and we would watch the news to see what on earth is happening with the rest of the world around us. And if there was, um, so if there was any left in the battery at the end of the day, I would watch the love boat. So on Wednesday night, we had the love boat. On Friday night, we had Dallas. And I would write subtitles on my arm in English. And because we, so if two people looked into each other's eyes and one guy said to the lady, or she asked a question and he said, maybe. So I knew maybe meant whatever they wrote down in Arabic. And I wrote a huge vocabulary on my arm. And we, because we barely had water to drink, let alone shower, we showered only once a week in a bucket, threw it on, scrubbed ourselves. I built a huge vocabulary mm-hmm. on my arm. That's how I learned English. I never studied English at school. Because I knew if I make it out of that, what President Trump, God bless him, calls a hellhole of a country, if I ever make it out of Lebanon and I need to be able to speak English in order for me to make it to America. Wow. And um, in 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon, working with the Christians, trying to help the Christians take back their country. All the Christians in Lebanon would go to Israel, get trained how to fight and come back to Lebanon. And then they were working together to expel the radical Islamic element out of the country. I catch you a question, Brigitte. I mean, um, amazing story. When you say something like that from from a child to that, and then when you hear just American people, like children, complaining about traffic or my Uh, internet's not working. My internet's not fast enough. It's insane to hear that. uh, The whole time you were talking about this, my question was, where, where does this hatred 
from to, to Christians and Christianity just come out of nowhere from what what did we do so wrong to make like that Muslim community just hate and want to kill us right off the rap, right off the rip for no reason where where does that come from look there are 2000 years of war history in the middle east this did not start yesterday yeah but it ramped up after um, the creation of the religion of Islam. Now, not all Muslims are radical. You and I, we, we lived in the Middle East, Patrick. They are the most wonderful people, hospitable, kind, open-hearted. Not all of them want to kill you. However, there is such a radical element to the religion. If you are a Christian or a Jew or Armenian mm-hmm. raised in the Middle East, mm-hmm. you understand there's a saying, First comes Saturday, then comes Sunday. First we kill the Jews, then we come for the Christians. So if you're a child raised in the Middle East, you're raised hearing this sentence. And you don't understand it as a child because it's, you know, it's you know, it's just something you hear. Yeah. But when you grow up, when, when the call of jihad is declared, all of a sudden, the division between communities is so stark and it's so deep. You know, while we as Christians, you know, in our faith, I'm raised as a Maronite, you know, Maronite Catholic. And, and our Christian in our faith, you know, d- you know, forgive those who trespass against you. Whoever slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other one. You know, we are taught all these things. Do unto others what you want others to mm-hmm. do unto you. You know, we, we are th- raised in the church. We are taught these things. But it's very different in the Islamic world, and especially with the radicals like the Khomeini's in Iran and his followers, that they believe that we are... You know, to stay alive, we either have to pay the jizya or the protection tax Mm -hmm. or convert to Islam. In our case, in Lebanon, they were attacking the Christians so viciously. And at that time, Hezbollah was not created yet. By 1982, when Israel came into Lebanon and expelled the radical Islamic element out of Lebanon, including the PLO... We had 11 Islamic terrorist organizations operating out of Lebanon, including the PLO. And that's shortly after Khomeini came to power in Iran. So Iran looked at Lebanon and they said, you know what? We've got all these Muslims in Lebanon, all these Muslim groups fractured. Why don't we combine them all into one party? Call it the party of Allah, Hazb Allah. So Iran started funding and investing in organizing all the Islamic radicals in Lebanon because we have a big majority Shia in Lebanon, big majority Shia in in Syria, and then Iran, and then there is some in Yemen. And the rest of the Middle East is Sunni. So that's how it started in Lebanon. My mother was wounded in that war. And um, we had to take her to Israel for treatment. And that's when I got to experience the compassion of Israel. That's when I really got to know Israelis. Um, my mother was wounded in the war as on, on the second day of the war as she was running into the bomb shelter. My father goes to the mattress in the bomb shelter and he gives me $60, pulls out $60, and he says, here's some money in case you need it because you're going to need to take your mom to the hospital in Israel. Up in that time, we had no medical help. The hospital in my house and my town was completely bombed out. We had no medical anything. Anybody that needed any medical attention after 1978 went to Israel. If you needed open heart surgery, you went to Israel free of charge, provided by the government of Israel and the good hearted people of Israel. If you needed brain surgery, if you needed to deliver a baby, if you needed whatever. When my mother was wounded, we had to take her to Israel for treatment. So by that time, I knew, you know, we're alive because of Israel. We're very close to Israel. The Christians and the Israelis became like this. Um, 
we go up to the hospital, the Lebanese hospital, and that Israel had fixed up one room, set up one wing with uh, one Israeli doctor on duty, two Israeli nurses to give first aid to people who were wounded. My, they gave first aid to my mother. They put her in an Israeli donated ambulance. And again, David donated ambulance. They put her in an Israeli donated ambulance and we flew to the border. Ten minute drive. And the driver was a Lebanese driver. We got to the border. They take my mother out of that ambulance and took her into another ambulance inside Israel, inside Metula, to drive us to the nearest hospital in Itzfat, which was about an hour away from the border. I walked around to the Lebanese driver to pay him the fee for the ambulance because he asked me, do you have any money for the fee? And like an innocent teenager who's never touched money, 17-year-old, I hand him my money and I said, how much do I owe you? And he looks at the money and he said, give me 30. And I, and I thanked him for his service. And I got with my mother. I'm crying. I'm you know, like, oh, my gosh, I'm 17 years old. My mom's wounded. My dad, my deaf dad by himself in the bomb shelter. I don't know what's going to happen to him. Nobody to take care of him. Um, I go to, um, the, we get inside the ambulance and we drive to the border. And this time we're seeing all the Israeli tank lined up, tanks lined up to invade Lebanon, to go into Lebanon. We get to the hospital, the Israeli driver gets out of the ambulance. And by the way, during the drive, he would talk to me. He was listening to the radio. He told me he was a reservist. He was just pulled in. And he would tell me how far Israel was advancing into Lebanon. We get into, um, we arrive to the hospital. I walk around to pay the Israeli driver his fee for the ambulance ride, thinking to myself, oh my gosh, if, if the 10 minute ride cost me 30, I'm sure I'm not going to have enough for this guy. And I, and I looked down and I said, how much do I owe you? And he says to me, you don't owe me anything. What is this for? You know, because I'm like putting, handing out my hand with the money. And I said, the fee for the ambulance, right? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, this is a free service from us to you. You don't owe me anything. You keep your money and you take good care of yourself. And I wish your mother a speedy recovery. And I was so touched. I could not believe my, my ears, my eyes. I, I just thanked him so much because... You know, he could have taken my money and partied all night and yeah. I would not have known the difference, but he didn't. That's when I realized, and that's when I realized that the Lebanese driver basically robbed me. He stole my money. That was my first experience between the difference between the Arabic culture and the Israeli culture. I thanked him. We got into the emergency room and there were hundreds of people laying on the hospital floor in the emergency room. It was a war scene. Palestinian terrorists brought in from Lebanon. Muslims brought in from Lebanon. Israeli soldiers brought in from Lebanon. Lebanese Christians like me brought in from Lebanon. The doctors were treating everyone according to their injury. They did not see religion. They did not see political affiliation. They did not see nationality. They saw people in need and they helped. The doctor treated my mother before he treated the Israeli soldier wounded laying next to her because her injury was more severe. I couldn't believe my These eyes. are the stories that are necessary to hear uh, for some that haven't experienced it. Just for a couple minutes before we go into some of the stories here, wh why do you think a lot of people in America, especially with academia, a lot with mainstream media, and the level of uh, when I, when, if I go on Twitter and I look at a Bassem Yosef, if I look at a person who is out there defending uh, uh, Palestinians, Gaza, Right. And just showing all the stuff that's going on with Israel. Why are they so much louder than Christians 
or even Jews? Why are they so much louder to the point where the world is sitting there saying, maybe they're right and maybe you're wrong? Maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe you're telling a mythical story to get people to panic and worry. And obviously, you know where I stand. You know, everybody knows where I'm at. But why do you think so many people are sitting there right now having a completely different position with Israel, especially after what Hamas did to Israel on October 7th? Why do you think that's happening? They are totally brainwashed because of the propaganda. So I'm from the Middle East. So I have friends on my social media from the Middle East. And so I have friends from Jordan. I have even Palestinian Christian friends. Yeah. Uh, I have friends from Lebanon. And I see what they're posting on their Facebook feed mm-hmm. and the lies that they are posting. A lot of them have never even been to Israel, have never even dealt with Jews other than what they hear on television, the propaganda and the lies and the AI. I just put up a video because my friends tell me, oh, this is AI. I remember sending a friend of mine a video of the woman in Israel with her stomach being cut open. I do not know if you've seen that video. Uh, the IDF trying to protect the, 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 the images from because they want to protect the family members. If you, you don't want to see your loved one being tortured like this, but they released those images to the press. So the press was able to see those images. And I remember sending that video to my friend in Jordan, a Christian friend in Jordan, who's totally brainwashed about the Palestinian cause. Uh, he's originally Palestinian, etc. And I said, I want you to see this level of barbarism where they cut a, a pregnant woman's stomach open on October 7th, took the baby out. And they put uh, gaff tape on her mouth so she can't even scream her screams when they're cutting her stomach open. And when she would pass out because she is being tortured, just body shock, they would hit her to wake her up so she can see what they're doing to her baby. And I sent him that video. That's a Hamas video shot by Hamas. Because, you know, they had body cameras. They were so proud of what they did. They were bragging about it. And he said to me, this is a lie. This is a video of some blah, 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 back some Palestinian being tortured, blah, blah, blah. They are fed such lies by the Palestinian propaganda machine that even when you show them the truth, they are unable to believe it. Now, I talk about the compassion of the Israel. I know the Israelis are not capable of doing anything like this to any Muslim woman. You know that we have Israeli friends and Jewish friends. They don't think like that. I lived in both worlds, and I'm getting to that. You know, I, I, I was born and raised in Lebanon. I ended up going to Israel and living in Israel. So I have a very different view. I have a very unique and fortunate view to have actually at one time held residences in the West Bank, in Israel, and in Lebanon because I was a journalist. So I worked in Jerusalem for five days out of the week. I would drive my car to Lebanon, change my license plate at the border, take Israeli license plates out, screw in French license plate, same car, drive it into Lebanon, do my business in Lebanon, drive back into Israel, check it for bombs, unscrew the license plates. I'll get to that. So I have a very unique point of view of both because I've lived in both of them. But when I but I want to continue a little bit about the compassion of the Israelis and why I know the Israelis the way I do. When after we were finished in the emergency room and I was talking to you about my mother being in the emergency room, they gave her first aid. They took her up to the fourth floor of the hospital where two other Lebanese ladies were brought in that morning. One Muslim, one Druze from Lebanon. They put my mother in the room and we were not there but five minutes. And I heard all this commotion outside our window. So I ran to the balcony to see what was going on. 
And I looked down and two Israeli helicopters had just landed bringing in wounded people from Lebanon. And I remember looking down stretcher after stretcher, carrying, and, you know, and everybody ran to the balcony to see what was happening. And I remember being surrounded by mothers of Israeli wounded uh, soldiers in the war, fathers, sisters, wives. It was an unbelievable scene. And I remember looking down, not making eye contact with anybody next to me, because even though I knew I'm a Christian, they didn't know that. I know I'm their friend. They're not going to do anything to me. I just felt so out of place looking at that scene. I didn't make any eye contact with anyone. I was, I felt sick to my stomach. I felt brokenhearted that these people are wounded because of the war with my country. And all of a sudden I feel this tapping on my shoulder. And this lady next to me looks at me and she puts her arm around me and she said, you are new here, aren't you? And I said, yes, they just brought in my mother. She's in this room. And without skipping a beat, she puts her arm around me and she hugs me. And she said, oh, don't worry. We'll take good care of her. And if you need anything, my name is Leah. And I remember breaking down crying. I remember breaking down because I felt such human quality that I knew it did not exist in my culture. Mm. I was standing on the fourth floor of that balcony knowing if I was a Jew standing in any, any hospital in any Arabic country, I would be thrown down to my death as shouts of joy of Allahu Akbar would echo through the street and down the surrounding neighborhoods. But they didn't. I spent 22 days in that hospital. Those days changed my life, changed the way I think about Israel. There were people being treated, Palestinians, Muslims, Druze, Israeli treated everybody in such a human way, in such a compassionate way. It was unbelievable. I had to go back to Lebanon to take care of my parents. But I vowed that one day I will return to Israel because these were the type of people I wanted to live amongst. These are the type of characters I wanted to have. As I stood on that balcony that day, I knew these people had were able to forgive and love the Palestinians, their enemy, in a way I wasn't able to. And I was the Christian who was taught to love like Jesus taught. Those days changed my life. I ended up going back to Lebanon that day. But two years later, I made my way back to Jerusalem and I became news anchor for world news in the Middle East, um, covering world events from 1984 to 1989. My story is detailed in a New York Times bestseller titled Because They Hate, where I talk about my journey into Israel and then my career. You'll find it as an entrepreneur, because we're not getting into the entrepreneurial stuff. You'll find it very interesting how I ended up being at the top of the pecking order of journalism, being the most famous, richest, youngest woman in the Middle East. Um, I ended up becoming news anchor for World News in the Middle East, covering world events. And as I reported on world events, I started realizing that what I used to think was a regional problem between a majority radical Islamic Middle East trying to either kill or expel the minority Christians and Jews had become a worldwide problem. But the world was not paying attention. When I went back to visit Israel in 2018, so I ended up leaving Israel. I met my American husband, a war correspondent that we worked together in Jerusalem. I got married. That's how I ended up in America by marriage. Um, I came here in 1989. But before I came here, 
I wanted to make sure that my parents are buried in Israel because I wanted to make sure that my children yet unborn will always know where my loyalty lies. I wanted them to always be drawn to Israel, to be drawn to what Israel represented, the character, the humanity, the respect, the authentic multicultural nation that endorses everybody. I buried my parents in Jerusalem. They are buried on Mount Zion. When I went back in 2018 to Israel, I went back and visited that hospital in 2018. This was just recent history. I went back and visited the hospital where my mother was. Unannounced, nobody knew I was there. I walked into the reception desk asking, is there any doctors working here that used to work here in 1984 and 1982? And of course, there was nobody there. But somehow I told them, look, my mother was here. I'm Lebanese. Can I go up to the fourth floor or whatever? Anyway, we ended up going to the floor, um, which is now a maternity ward or something. They changed it. And I took my daughter with me to that hospital. And when I was there and when they found out who I am and the head of the hospital came out and I found out while I am at the hospital, there are Syrian people wounded from Syria. Remember, this is ISIS 2018. Mm -hmm. Wounded from Syria, brought into the border. The Israeli brought them to the hospital to treat them. They come to the border literally with a sticky yellow pad, a little note on their thing. The Israeli doctor, most of the time, they don't even know what they're dealing with, where they're wounded. It's somebody who looked at them, um, probably somebody sympathetic and said, you know, that they're you know, blown up this, that. Israel brings them into the hospital. The press is not allowed to talk to them. You know why? Because the Syrians are so afraid that ISIS or people in Syria would kill their family members. They are not even able to acknowledge that Israel saved their lives. Brigitte, can I bring this to present day? Ridiculous story, by the way. Incredible story. Um, even uh, Yahya Sinwar, who is the head of Hamas, was in an Israeli prison. He had a major medical issue. I think it was a brain tumor, brain cancer. An Israeli doctor, Israeli medical staff saved his life. Think about that for a second. He went on to go back to Gaza, and now we know what happened October 7th. I want to bring it back to present day. Um, intersectionality. You hear this, this term DEI, just to kind of bring it to today. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, you see these people marching. Uh, gays for Gaza, queers for Palestine. You see the situation going on. And I've heard you comment about like this 100-year plan uh, to basically have the West crumble from within, using our tolerance, using our appreciation for diversity, using our equity and inclusion against us. What do you think is going on in this sort of woke mind virus where you have these you know, hardliner authoritarian regimes intersecting with these super leftist, liberal, woke mind virus-esque type people, and they're chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Most of these people couldn't tell you what river or what sea is That's going right. on beyond. But at the same time, I don't think they're evil. I don't think they're, um, they hate us, these types of people, the DEI crowd. I just think they're completely ignorant. Speak they're, to actually, that for a they're actually good-hearted young Americans who want to love everybody. Yeah. And there is nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful quality to have. This is why people come from all over the world to come to America, not only to pursue a dream, but because in America, you are welcomed with an open arm. I mean, but, uh, uh, immigrants like David, uh, like Patrick and I, 
Okay, so I'm a first generation immigrant. I know he's a first generation immigrant. I'm not sure about the uh, three of you. You were born here. My mom and dad were born in Iran, but I was born Born in America. Born in America. He's a Canadian. So we're the ones who made it through the process to come to America. So other than the fact that we can be all we can be as Americans, the fact that America opens you with open arms, no matter what, what country you come from, you become an American. You are an American. You are one of us, whether you're Japanese, Chinese, Mexican, black, white, yellow, Hispanic. Jamaican. it's un- unbelievable. We are truly the melting pot out of many. We become one. That is such a unique, unbelievable concept. Uh, I never felt a stranger in America from the day I landed. I'm an entrepreneur. I started a television production company. My clients were Oprah, Dr. Phil, Inside Edition, ABC, NBC, CBS. When I published my book, by the way, I couldn't even give it to Oprah. She didn't, couldn't even know who I am and what I did. Otherwise, I'll lose the business. Uh, I lose her business. But that's beside the fact. America is a... I never felt discriminated against because, oh, I'm brown or I'm a woman or I'm five feet tall. I went for the gusto and I got it and I live the American dream. And I can do a whole show with you just on being an entrepreneur in America as a woman raised in a bomb shelter. English is my third language. I speak four languages and how I made it in America. And I didn't even go to college. People are stunned. They assume I have so many degrees. Because in America, when you have a brain, the sky is the limit. The problem, so it's wonderful quality for our children to be inclusive, to want to love, to want to change the world, to make the, make the world a better place. Every single one of us at 20 years old, we wanted to make the world a better place and we wanted to change the world. And we had dreams of how life should be and how everybody should get along together. The problem with our stupid, unguided youth today, the snowflakes, they have never experienced hardship. They never had to work for anything. They were, even with their grades, Patrick remembers when we went to school, we had to work to pass. If I did not pass, and by the way, my schooling, when I started school at four years old, I had to study two languages. I started with French and Arabic. And I had to learn by the age of six, I had to write in French and in Arabic, take geography in French and in Arabic, take writing history in French and in Arabic. And then they add English at the sixth grade. I didn't study English. I went, I stayed with the French course and I ended up learning English, you know, the, the way I shared with you. So when, when, when in America, the sky is the limit in what you can accomplish, but the brainwashing that happened in America happened systematically over decades. You know, they say 20-year success, uh, an overnight success takes 20 years. And my first book, Because They Hate, which came out basically in 2006, if you read it, you think I wrote it yesterday. I discuss all the money being funneled into our universities. I talk about, I have a whole chapter about the fifth column in our universities. And I talk about money flowing from the Middle East into our universities to the tune of millions, Harvard, Georgetown, Columbia, Rutgers, etc., setting up Middle East study departments and political science departments and are appointing Arab professors who are anti-Israel and anti-America to teach our students that America is bad, Israel is evil, and the Islamic world is the, is the underdog. Where is the money coming from? All over the Middle East, from wealthy sheikhs, wealthy foundations, funneling it to bring students to America and to these universities. 
and using the Title VI program. The Title VI program was instituted by our government after World War II to teach American students about foreign cultures and foreign languages and foreign governments so they can be an asset to our country. Those who want to get into the diplomatic field, work for the State Department, get into the CIA. So what the Arabs of the Middle East started using, they used the Title VI program to funnel the money through that program into our universities, setting up Middle East Study Department and Political Science Department. So they started brainwashing the kids from the top level from their professors. At the same time, the Muslim Student Association was established on American college campuses. So all these students being imported from the Middle East, from countries who hate America and hate Israel, they're already brainwashed. They get here, they immediately plug into the Muslim Student Association, and they start working together on multicultural things. Oh, show up for Hummus Night on Friday night and learn about the wonderful religion of Islam and, and Mecca and fasting. And so the brainwashing systematically happened for 20 years, and that's how you ended up with what you have today. And, and by the way, with that being said, you know, what a story you've experienced. Pretty wild. When somebody tells a story like that, literally the word is unbelievable. It's hard to believe, right? When you tell a story like that, who's going to believe a story like that unless you've experienced it? And sometimes it's hard to even explain it to somebody else. But it, this is normal. This has happened to a lot of people. I personally have my own version of that myself as well. I appreciate you sharing your story. Let's go into some stories on what's going on today. The first one I want to start off with is the following. Iran, shadow war with Iran risks turning into a direct conflict. Now, this is from Wall Street Journal, and there's a lot of people right now worrying if this thing's going to turn into something bigger than it already is. We're aware of all the proxy wars, but it's gonna, is, it, is it going to become direct? So the Biden administration prepares to respond to a drone strike by Iranian-backed militias that, are killed three American, that killed three American soldiers in Jordan, with Biden holding Iran responsible and approving plans for multi-day strikes in Iraq, Syria, against multi-targets, including Iranian personnel and facilities, as early as this weekend. U.S. seeks to send a clear message to Iran while avoiding direct conflict, aiming to de-escalate tensions by getting Iran and its proxies to reduce attacks across the region. The response plan includes a tired approach that combines military actions with other measures signaling Washington's intentions. And then right afterwards, Financial Times, January 31st, here's a story for you. Iran back Iran, Iraqi militia says it suspended its attacks on U.S. forces. We announced the suspension of military and security operations against the occupation forces in order to prevent embarrassment of the Iraqi government, said Abu Hussein al-Hamidawi, Secretary General of Qatawib. Hezbollah, a Shia forces founded in the aftermath of the 2003 U.S. invasion of forces. We will continue to defend our people in Gaza in other ways. Passive defense, hostile American action. Tom, you hear a story like this. What do you think is really going to happen? Are you as concerned as some people are that we're eventually or we already are in a direct war with Iran? I mean, let's face it. We are in a, a proxy war with Iran. We are providing weapons uh, to people who are under assault uh, by proxies of Iran. So guess what you've got? You, we're, we're basically at war with Iran, and they know it. What they don't want is us to make direct moves on naval assets. And when you see the word in print, naval assets, that is an Iranian warship with guys on it. And uh, what they don't want is that thing to be sunk. And so that's what they're talking about. And the U.S., um, you know, the foreign policy under Reagan was you chip my tooth, I'm taking off your head. That's basically the way it worked. And that's how strength through peace is accomplished. Here, 
I think they've realized that we have been trying to stay on the sidelines and support our friends and support our friends indirectly. We put battleships off the coast and like as a warning that if you want to escalate this, we're right here. And, you know, you know, F.A.F.O. Right. You know, level 10. Here it comes. And I, what I see right now is the Iranian government realizing that one of they don't completely control all of their their proxies. And I think their proxies stepped out a little bit and and hit a U.S. base and killed some people and wounded a bunch of other people's. And now they know the U.S. is looking at it and saying, listen, our base, our soil. You know, if you're in the military and you're right, Vinny? Overseas. If you're yeah. overseas, it's our base. We call it our base, our soil. This is us. And so we see that as a direct attack. And I think Iran is backpedaling a little bit, saying, hey, hey, through their proc and through their through their spokespeople and, you know, financial times and things like this, they're getting the word back out. Hey, you know, uh, you know, maybe the U.S. Hey, easy does it. Easy does it, guys. Down boy, down boy. And that's what we're seeing here, because now they know that typically we put together an outsized response. And looking at the calendar, it's a election year. Biden needs to show strength. The administration needs to show strength. And so they see all that coming together is the U.S. is going to strike back hard. And they're not talking about you know, you know, economic sanctions trying to control the price of oil. Now, the Republican Party is split, though. There's a group that wants them to attack, and there's a group that doesn't want them to attack. Do you think a direct attack is the right move right now? I, 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 I do not want to minimize the value of the lives of of the men that were lost. I cannot. Men and women. There was a, there was a female, and I'll, I'm going to get into that later, too. But, and Pat, you made a great point, Tom. Proxy war, all these words before the word war. We are at war. They're killing us. We are losing soldiers. It's only a matter of time. These are the soldiers that passed away. God rest their souls. Yeah, it's like a handoff. We're the quarterback. We're handing it to the running and, back. Somebody else know, is getting hit. And I'm but tired that's of that. Yeah, working. and I'm tired because people are like, it's a pro- bro, we are at war. There's wars happening all over the place. Russia's at war with Ukraine. Every, this is, and it's only a matter of time, bro. And Pat, you nailed it. Lindsey Graham and them, they're like, go Iran. Iran, let's go. Uh, what's, her, what's her name? Nikki Haley. We want a war, bro. That's what, we are, we are edging and edging and edging. These are little moments where one more spark like this, and we're going to go. Into so let me ask you. The Hawks won a war. I'll answer your question in four words or, or less. The Hawks won a war. Hit the proxy hard. But, but okay, fine. So let's let's let me give you the other argument. So one argument is what, you know, all the all these guys want to do with the military industrial complex. All they want to do is they want to go to war and they're doing it because of money and all this other stuff. Okay, fine. So what do you want us to do? Do nothing. Is it is it? No, don't attack them. Just sit on the sidelines. So make up your mind, whoever. And I'm again, I'm calling. Make up your mind. Do you want us to defend and be strong or do you just want us to sit there and allow these guys to keep doing this and we keep looking weak? To the entire world. What's the right choice well, here? We went over this on the last episode when we were talking about the Wall Street Journal. Everything's about options and sequencing from the options. So Vinny's right. Everything starts with war, whether it's a hot war, whether it's a cold war, whether it's a proxy war. Yeah. But the reality is uh, something needs to be done. Iran needs to be dealt with. So if it's in a direct conflict with Iran, nobody's looking for that other than Lindsey Graham or Nikki Haley. Nobody wants that. But I think we understand that Iran is the tip of the spear. Okay, that's option A. Option number two, proxy wars. Whether it's the Houthis in the Red Sea, whether it's Hamas in Gaza, who is funded by Iran, whether it's Hezbollah, your old yeah. friends in Lebanon, tell them I say hello. I walk uh, my head on a platter, by the way. Exactly, yeah. I'm sure. Oh, for sure. Um, or the old, you know, option three, economic sanctions. So 
either way, it, the old peace through strength thing, we, we cannot simply sit idly by and allow these people, these terrorists, regimes, authoritarian regimes, just to do what they want. Brigitte, what do you think? We are at war. Yeah. For sure. They yeah. have attacked us 160 times since October 7th. That's correct. This 160 attacks. We responded 15 times. Sure. Empty warehouse buildings. The last time he ordered the attack against the Houthis Biden, it took six days from the time he issued the order until they attacked. And then they told him to get out because we don't want anybody hurt. When was last time you appeased the bully and you won the war? I mean, this is basic, simple. You don't need to be all dragged out, all Armageddon. But look what President Trump did. You know, President Trump took out Soleimani. Yep. He didn't need to bomb the nuclear facilities in Iran. He didn't need to bomb the Houthis and the other extra proxy armies of Iran. Forget the proxies. You know, you can bomb the Houthis, you can bomb Hamas, you can bomb Islamic Jihad, and you can bomb Hezbollah. Iran can start another group, call it the Djiboutis. You are chasing your tail if you're attacking the proxies. When President Trump killed Soleimani, everybody goes, oh, my gosh, we're going to be dragged into war. You didn't hear a beep out of Iran. When President uh, Bush bombed Gaddafi back in 1986 and killed his daughter, he bombed his palace in Libya, you didn't hear a beep out of big Gaddafi wants to attack the United States. I remember visiting America in 1986, being at the World Trade Center, my first trip to the United States in New York on top of the World Trade Center. I looked at my boyfriend and I said... Does, has Gaddafi ever been to America? Has he seen this? This is what he's really going up against. So for once, we need to attack, but we need to attack strategically. What I worry about with our senile suit sitting at the White House called our president, unfortunately, I don't trust his judgment and I don't trust the judgment of neither his military leaders that are surrounded, surrounding him, nor his advisors. President Trump knew how to evaluate with a solid, open mind how to attack. He was a very sharp man. He evaluated the risk. He was, his enemies knew that he's going to deal with them and how they're going to deal with them. The world doesn't fear Biden and does not feel Biden, fear Biden's advisors. They know Biden is going to make a show just because it's an election well, year. That's this, what I worry about. This is the challenge with Biden. Oh, no, you said Gaddafi 1986. I think you meant to say 96. I just want to make sure you... you you mean 1986 is when we bombed. No, we killed his daughter. We bombed his palace. He wanted to get into war with America. I was news anchor for World News in the Middle East at that time, and I was covering that event. And when we bombed Gaddafi's palace and killed his daughter in that attack, you didn't hear a beep out of it. I got you. Go for it. This is the challenge that Biden's facing currently right now, and it's, you know, sort of the Obama doctrine, the the appeasement to... Appeasement. Appeasement to our enemies, Iran especially, Everyone knows what happened the nuclear nuclear deal. But Biden's in a tough place right here. Obviously, he's pulled out of Afghanistan. That was a mess. He's basically like, we don't want more in the Middle East. We know that. But they want war with us. Yes. So there's no They've avoiding this, President war. Biden. Right. And this is the challenge right now. But also the challenge is coming from the left flank as well as his party. Whether it's the Ilhan Omars of the world, Rashida Tlaibs of the world, the AOCs of the world. Basically saying, if you don't support the Palestinians and that cause and everything that comes with the Triple H, basically the Hamas, the Hezbollah, the Houthis, we won't vote for you. And he's like, oh, shit, I need their vote. But if they don't vote for him, let's say you're just going to get Trump elected Gaza Brigade. 
Let me know how that's going to work for you. Take Soleimani in his example. So it, he's in a lose-lose situation. He's in a lose-lose not just with the Muslims, but with the Jews. Remember, yes. the Jew, 80% of the Jewish community is yes. radical lefty. They are progressive. I don't and know they, about radical, but they are certainly major, liberal. They're major donors to the Democratic Party. Let's Clearly. face it. But that it, is changing is as of October 7th. Let's, so. see. Well, let's see. Let's see. We'll see. You know, let's this is see. a failure in leadership. You are so right. And first of all, um, thank you for your story and thank you for what you're talking about. That whole... I was in high school when all that happened. And to hear you talking about how, you know, the the immigration that all those Jordanians that came over with a motive yep. that flooded in and how everything went. And then uh, Arafat rose as the, you know, the, 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 the savior and the it's just it's horrible. This is a failure of leadership. What you're talking about in 86 was Operation Rustic Canyon and. When And for people that maybe aren't old enough to remember, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya was a menace in the Middle East, point one. Point two, he then took direct credit for the bombing of Pan Am 104 over Lockerbie, yep. Scotland. When he took credit for that, it took President Reagan days, not weeks, not months, not a trip to the U.N. It took him days to issue a very firm response. And by the way, there was also a cruise missile in that attack that hit the French embassy down the street. Yep. Yep. Who had received a phone call that maybe tonight was a good night to see a movie. True story. Um, because the French wouldn't let us fly over their airspace. So <laughs> we left a message in the middle of that. But he sent a measured response. Not a war against the people. Right. People. Right of that country, uh, of Libya, not a war that, that put a lot of American lives at risk, a measured response to the, and guess what? When did you hear from, from Gaddafi? He went into 15 years That's of near right. silence. That's right. Because he said, you know what? I want to be a dictator. I said, I don't want to be a martyr. Yeah. Right. And that was a measured direct response. But what the hell is the U S supposed to do? Meaning we've learned the hard way regime change is not going to work out for us. Right. In Gaddafi, Libya, what the hell's going on there these days? Iraq, disaster. Iran's basically a proxy running the government in, in, in Iraq. Afghanistan, how the hell did that work out 20 years later? What are we doing in Syria? Just whoever we replace, just like what's going, whoever we replace Putin with, how do we know it won't be worse? We try to replace these dictators and we get ISIS. What are we left to do in the Middle East? Because of the lack of information and knowledge of history. You know, they say those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. If, if, if Americans and the American leadership knew any better, keep Gaddafi in place. You know, Libya, you know, people think of a country. Libya is basically three cities, three tribes, three clans. That's it. You took Gaddafi out. Gaddafi had his thumb on them. They fractured. Now everybody is, on, is for himself. You know, the same thing with Iraq and Iran. We don't understand our enemy. And this is the problem with the lack of leadership. Under Obama, he took us into disaster. Disaster. But it was all under Bush. It wasn't under Obama. It was under Bush. I understand. But then it just got worse under Obama. Trump understood what was happening in the Middle least i mean uh biden withdrew us out of afghanistan that disastrous withdrawal out of afghanistan after 20 years the problem is we got into nation building and we forgot why we have an army we don't have an army to go nation build we have an army works. to go kill our enemy kill not nurtured not make them like us not give them diversity training we 
invest money in our military to go out and kill. That's the job of the military. And when they kill, they deter. And deterrence, when, uh, when your enemy fears you, they don't want to fight well, you. you're just going to, you know, like they say in Afghanistan that, you know, you might have all the watches, but we have all the time. That's if you right. try to do this killing, it's just going to be whack-a-mole. And they're just going to pop up again. Like, we see what's going on in Gaza. All right, so they, they destroyed tens of thousands of people. Who, you know, depending on how you believe the numbers, some are uh, Hamas, some are in, civilians. Horrible. Nobody wants to see civilians. But that's just going to sprout new hateful people we're, who want revenge. No, we're Where talking does it strategic. Yeah. When, when, when uh, uh, President Trump took out Soleimani, President Trump did not do what ISIS did on Friday in Iran, the suicide bombing that killed hundreds of people that drove hate. That was strategic attack. When Ronald Reagan attacked and bombed Libya, that was a strategic attack. He didn't go out to kill somebody or to kill massive people. Strategic attacks. The problem that we are facing right now, and this is why I worry about under Biden is because they don't know how to attack strategically or how to think. We have a foreign policy cabinet right now who do not understand anything about foreign policy. They don't even know you know their history. You know, it's a great thing about what's going on. Here's what's a great thing about what's going on. Tens of millions of people right now have buyer's remorse with Biden. They're yeah. not happy with that decision being made, but they can't publicly talk about it. Yeah. Because if they do, we, human nature, none of us like to be wrong. None of us like to be wrong. It doesn't matter who you, the most noble man in the world doesn't want to be wrong, right? It's kind of like our wiring ego. It's our way of protecting that we're smart and we're this. Okay. But there's tens of millions of people that have buyers remorse. Some of them are vocal about it. Some of them are kind of starting to say, hey, man, this is like not a, a, a thing that we didn't make the right decision here. Of course, they hated Trump. But the other thing is also the following. It's, it's like, the you know, we talk about this where the rule of comedy, where if you're on stage and, you know, one of the guys in the audience rattles you, you show weakness, you lost the audience, your show's going to suck. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bill Burr is in Philadelphia, I want to say, and a guy from Philadelphia, I send it to you, you probably couldn't finish the Amazing. whole thing, right? And one guy says something to him. He went 13 minutes. It's the most disturbing 13 minutes you'll ever see here because the stuff he says, you've never heard anybody talk shit this way. He just went all out saying stuff about the audience's <laughs> mother, their <laughs> wives, their girlfriends. The statue they, of Rocky Balboa. Every, <laughs> he says, imagine how shitty your city is that the only statue you have is of a fake actor, <laughs> Rocky Balboa. You have nothing to brag about, wow, right? Yeah. So what happens? He won. And then he took off, right? His career, because he afterwards is like, dude, I'm done. I'll never get another job again. <laughs> All of a sudden, everybody's like, no, and man, come on. We want it. more. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is you have to react in the moment for people to know that you're not somebody to, you know, mess with. When you take this long after yeah. the, they're attacking the ships and you're not doing anything to it. They're literally, the pirates are coming down with a helicopter doing videos saying, hey, look at this. We took the ship over. Look at these idiots. And we're attacking 78 different people within the span of a few weeks in the month of December. We don't do nothing about it. Yep. And then you take your time to show strength. Strength doesn't work that way. Strength isn't you go to a bar, somebody punches you in the face. You show up seven weeks later. Hey, man, you punched me in the face seven yeah. weeks ago. That's not cool. That's not how we'll right. fight. You have to do something that moment. And unfortunately, I think their philosophies of trying to be noble and gentle with people that don't want to be noble and gentle is kind of being exposed right now. And they look like clowns. They look like idiots. 
And the people in America that are in the middle 12% that are able to reason, and they're kind of looking at both sides, these are the people that run America. You have to realize, moving forward, whoever you vote for, do not let anybody scare the crap out of you that someone's going to start war and the other person's going to be peaceful. You need a leader that's going to be strong, that's going to scare the crap out of the enemy. Exactly. The enemy, because that reduces wars. I think you wanted to say something. And and as a veteran, I have to address this, because speaking of... Joe Biden, his lack of response. We know he's asleep. It's not him. He's not doing right. anything. He's not, yeah. He called uh, a couple days ago. He called the family of one of the soldiers who passed away, 24-year-old SPC Kennedy uh, Lauden Sanders, who she died in the, in the drone uh, attack in Jordan. He proceeds, they, he called the family right here. He proceeds to lie to these poor, grieving people saying, and I quote, my son spent a year in Iraq. That's how I lost him. Just FYI for everybody. Joe Biden's son, Bo, is who he's talking about. He died of brain cancer, okay, when he left the military, okay? I feel so bad. Like, this is the clip right here. He's, he literally lies to these poor people. Your son didn't die in Iraq. Your son died of brain cancer here, okay? So the lying for these people, and it's like, bro, this poor guy, Bo, God rest his soul, that only is his father a, a lying, corrupt, child-sniffing creep. Hunter Biden, his son, sleeps with his Widow, like this guy has no. Can we play this clip? Yeah, back? Of course. This is him lying to this crying, grieving family who just lost a 24 year old daughter. Go ahead, Rob. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to, lot to me. Uh, my son spent a year in Iraq until I lost him. No, and, you're uh, lying. I, uh, you know, 1%, 1% of all these kids are the ones that. Uh, you get like you know how much that pisses me off. That look at you, you, you guys have children. Do you imagine what they're going through? Oh. And this piece of trash is literally lying to them. And look at what he's making them do. Are you freaking kidding me? Why? And nobody checks him. Nobody says, dude, you're a liar. You are a liar. And Pat, that goes Rob, to show. Go and just say his. Oh, he's talking about Bo Biden. I'm talking. He's, he's talking, talking about, about Bo Biden. How did Bo die? And and, and think Google, about how did Bo Biden and die? This is the same. Pre- this this president. If he's doing that, no wonder why he does. There's no strength. There's no nothing. And when they killed a Soleimani, you know what CNN? What year did he die? What year did he die, Rob? I want to say it's. Uh, Can you zoom in a little bit, Rob? Saturday, a- May thirtieth, two thousand fifteen. Saturday, May 30th, 2015. When, when did he, can you grab some tissue? When did he serve in, uh, uh, when did he serve when he was uh, uh, in the military? What year did he serve? Unbelievable. Then people yeah. wonder why this guy's, like, really, bro? When did he serve? 2003 to 2015. So he served from 2003 to 2015, and he died when? 2015. I think what he's trying to do, I think he was diagnosed with a brain tumor but, but, while in But he didn't service, die. But he, correct. He did, he's, correct. That's, this you're, is, you're lying. Look, this is where it gets gray. He was he was diagnosed while serving. That's, he died in America. I get it. I get it. I yeah, get yeah. It. I get it. He spent the year in Iraq. That, that's basically saying my son died in the same type of war that you were in. That's not the case. That's lying. Plus, lying. why bring up your son? Yeah. They are the focus. You're calling to console them. Yes. I feel sorry for you. My heart breaks for you. I cannot imagine what you're going through. Yep. I will do everything in my power to avenge the death of 100%. your loved ones. I will go That's after the what pe- a president That's talks what about. That's I want to hear. I'm going at the people exactly. that killed your kid. I'm going to kill I'm them. Go- Bye. Right. Her blood and their blood, his blood, her blood is not going to be shed in vain. Yep. I am here fighting for you. This is a 
America. She died on behalf of all of us. We are all standing with you. Yep. That's how a president well, talks. By the way, these types of calls are not easy calls to make. And for, for a person who's a leader of an organization has to know how to make these calls. You, you can't fake these calls. You no. can't. A, a leader needs to know, you know, like, you know, we run an insurance company. Guess what? Call, I just had two calls to make this week. Do you, Tom, uh, I'll text you one of our leaders. Her husband thought, you know who he is. And message being sent to them. You can't call in. Make the emphasis that, you know, you, you don't understand the challenge that I went through. You're making a yeah, very good no. point of what you're talking about. You talk about, about them. But, but again, more, more than anything else, we're learning and we're watching for everything that's going on. When there is war, you're not going to want a soft leader that you convince the world is going to bring America together. And he has not. Yeah. Period. Don't sit there trying to convince America that this noble leader of yours has brought everybody together. Did you see Biden uh, and Obama, the way Obama shook his hand? Like, get your act together. And Ob yeah. Ob Biden's like looking at yeah. him like this. No. Do you have that or no, Rob? Do you have that picture? If you don't have that picture, there's a picture of the two just recently. It's as if the father is telling the Telling the son, like, hey, like, get hey, your man, stuff together. Did you, have you guys seen this recently? No, none of those. It's the one on right there, the third one. Yeah, it's the third one right there. You know, it's uh, it, you know, it's almost like he's going to do a wrestling move on him right there and yeah. drop him. But there's another picture on it as well. Who knows what's going on behind closed doors? You know, all of this leads to whether a decision is going to be made or not. Can you go to James O'Keefe? I'm going to read the story with James O'Keefe. And if you can prepare the video to the moment for us to go through. Very interesting. Now, James... You know, we've had him on, very interesting guy, bold guy. The guy has brass, and he's, he's a trollish guy. He's willing to face these guys and have the conversations with them. The way he goes about getting intel is very creative, guerrilla journalism at the highest level. And here's what takes place. Not Afraid to Die, James O'Keefe unveils the, a new Sting video featuring White House official. In a newly video, James O'Keefe conducted a Sting operation where he met with Charlie Krager, a White House official. Krager candidly discussed various topics, including President Joe Biden's mental health and the reason uh, behind Kamala Harris's being kept on the 2024 ticket. Krager, Krager expressed concerns about Biden's mental health, stating he's definitely slowing down. He also mentioned the decision to retain uh, Harris as the vice presidential nominee, saying there was a debate between about removing her from the ticket, but sadly they didn't. He added, she's not popular, but you can't remove the first black lady to be vice president from the God, you know what, presidential ticket. Go ahead and play that uh, uh, clip, Rob, from the place you have it at. Go for it. Yeah, I know. I know. He's got I know. dementia. Um, yeah, well, probably hasn't clinically yet. Not yet. Um, but he's definitely slowing down. Well, my question is, are the people, like your colleagues or the White House or whatever, do they get it? Do they know that? I think that they probably do, but no one in modern history has ever said, like, we're not going to renominate the president for a second term. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that just hasn't happened. Like, so they know that he has those issues. I think so. But they're not I mean, willing the to say it. Shows it. And, they're not and willing to say correct. it publicly. And same thing but with Kamala Harris. She's not popular, but you can't remove the first black lady to be vice president from the goddamn Weird. presidential team. Like, what kind see. of message are you going to send to, like, African-American voters? So that's the reason why she sucks. By the way. I think. How would you spin that? How would you spin that? 
like she's a woman and she's multiracial and she's like she's not ready for this ready oh for this? my yeah. god by the way go back to it on what his title is again yeah just put that again where what the title is no no on the video where, where it says what his title is when you put it he's the executive uh 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 you would just play the clip i was saying it right there rob yeah there you go cybersecurity policy and Okay, uh, in the executive office at the White House, working directly with Barack Obama. He what? says, I had a meeting with Michelle Obama. Someone asked her, will you ever run for office? And she said, no, empathetically. She was like, I've seen all the shit my husband has had to go through, and that does not interest me. Okay. He <laughs> continues. Go ahead. That's hilarious. She goes, you know, Kamala Harris hemorrhages black staff. She can't keep black staff. They quit on her en masse. They're worried about her getting fired because they'll lose the black vote. But black people hate her. They don't like her. And this whole, and by the way, I have, I have, I know somebody that's just like, Vinny, you know, who cares? She was the first Indian and she's the first. Why do you care? I go, she sucks at her job. What has she done to help the administration, to help African-Americans, to help? What is she doing? She just cackles and laughs and does absolutely nothing. Mm. At least Mike Pence had a fly in his head that day was entertaining. <laughs> at least we got well, to laugh at the fly. The, the Democrats are between you know a mean? rock and a hard place. Oh. And, and this is actually very interesting to me because I actually had dinner and went out with O'Keefe the night before in Miami. And I said, hey, he, I got, he's like, I got to go. It's like at two in the morning. He's like, I got to go home. I got to get wake up and buy a costume tomorrow. I said, what are you talking about? He's sending me these selfies right here of him at Walmart That's buying the outfit. He dyed his hair. He's blonde because he's more of a... Uh, darker. He dyed his hair blonde. You remember when we interviewed him in uh, in Arizona? He had dyed his hair gray. Yeah, well, that's the Walmart worker so, there. Yeah. Like, what? So he's doing, doing his dude? thing, and his objective. And shout out to O'Keefe. You know how sly he is, and yeah. he's doing his thing. He good looking dude, big dude, fit dude. He meets with these gay dudes that quite <laughs> frankly that are trying to hook up. <laughs> yeah. He meets them in DC. He has hey, a little cocktail with them. Story. Yeah. Well, he's a sleuth. Yeah. Shout out to you, O'Keefe. And he gets and they're security like, people. Yeah. And they're having a wine. And he, and he gets these guys. He just kind of disarms he them. He played gay very yes. well. But can I ask yeah. you a question? Hold on, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So he basically <laughs> has a drink with them, gets them to open up a little bit. Yeah, the truth So hero. tell me yeah. about what's going on. They're like, well, you know. Because they don't think they're meeting with a journalist. They want to bang. They them. think they're on a freaking date. Yeah, they want to hook up. They're looking for dick. <laughs> He's looking for dirt. It's basically what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, dick and dirt. Calling a spade a spade here. So he gets them to basically, you know, open up, loosen up, literally, tell them what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he takes his glasses off. He's like, by the way, why would you be having lunch with James O'Keefe here right now? Dude. They're like, what? You're O'Keefe? He's like, because you look exactly the same. He just has glasses on. Dude, well, you know what? Like, Kudos so, for O'Keefe. Like yeah. We Clark need somebody Kemp on our side <laughs> exactly. who is willing to play dirty, like the Democrats play dirty, in order to get the goods. Good for O'Keefe, who's putting his neck on the line to get the footage that of we have. A lot of people are willing to express their opinion on his board. Remember, you know, kicking him out. Yeah. Good for you, James O'Keefe, but, for yeah. doing what you are doing and keep on doing what you're doing here's what we, we learn, need though. you here's what we learn though for sure this will come back to our conversation we have Tom. we all know that biden is slowing down we know that you know whether you're slowing whether down, you actually he's falling think apart he has dementia or not yeah 
He's his out. his staffer basically says he's slowing down. Yeah, you know Nobody's what? My, you know what my that. friend in Italy said about Biden. I was having a conversation to Italy yeah. last weekend. Oh, you're stupid president. We did we call it slowing down because we're trying to be politically correct no, and nice. He's done. The rest of the world calls him stupid. Yeah. It's about time it's, we listen he's to old. How our he's, enemy he's, proceeds. He's them. old. No doubt. No, but okay. I, my mom hold on. She's not finish. like that. That's different. I story. agree. Okay. I agree. Number two. They can't get rid of Kamala. She's the never-ending problem. Okay, like the never-ending story. They cannot do away with her, regardless of how unpopular Only one she way. is. Only one she can, way. Unless they replace her with exactly. Michelle. And you saw exactly what happened here. And I've said it from the rooftops, but you guys don't believe me. Well, what's Michelle fall? Obama has no interest in wait, wait running a minute, for Wait a minute, Adam. Don't don't act like you're the almighty yes i am you you you, you, you sit <laughs> there said and you say let me tell you always trust the vegas odds yes can you pull up the vegas odds for president pull up the vegas odds for president always trust the vegas odds. i said, that, I said always that trust I the vegas there odds we go who's right. number three michelle obama michelle always trust three? the vegas odds she's in okay. always trust the vegas she's odds. not running mr yes. always trust I'll, the vegas I'll, odds so, if so you're your always no, your no 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 you, 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 you talk <laughs> for shit. you 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 talk like you're this you know Psychic. statesman that's like you're counseling your intellectual she's not running and, the, she, and she went from she being 40th yeah 40th a year and a half ago to now she started God, two ahead of God Newsom. Help us. By, by the way, and God forbid, God two ahead forbid, of Newsom. God forbid this dimension. Trust by, Vegas odds, homeboy. Mr. Handsome. Hold on, hold on, pretty boy. If if that number two <laughs> guy, guys, handsome and pretty boy, stop it with the hold name. Hold on. If the, if the, I got two things to say. If the number two guy right there just falls down a flight of stairs, she's in the two spot. Oh, and guess what? God. She will. It's going to be a challenging one. Number one. Number two. Mm-hmm. In, in regards to James O'Keefe, who, he's a freaking great dude. I message him all the time. Can we have a conversation? Can the White House have a grab all the LGBTQ employees of like, guys, stop spilling dirt at fucking okay. restaurants yeah. or just any restaurant. If you want to bang, go bang whoever you want yes. to bang. Stop talking. They should have his face the- on a milk cart and be like, have you seen this man? Stay away. Yeah, and by He way, ain't going to give you yeah. what you're looking and for. Speaking of gays in the White House, you guys know the guy, the staffer that was shooting porn yeah guess what he guess what he got don't tell me that was james o'keefe no (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's not my guy guess what that guy got guess what guess what punishment nothing absolutely january he got a slap on the wrist no he got a slap on on that ass a grandmother (laughs) waving a flag january 6th she's in jail for five years guess what shooting porn in congress on the floor gets you zero no way what yes way that's a fact take it to the bank he will not be charged for how's that possible will not be charged for shooting gay porn desecrating the senate hearing room he is a guess what he's a winner adam because guess what you want to talk about kamala protected and whatever look at that community he's a winner this just confirms what we already knew we can probably move on from this i mean it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt and that's just what this guy did this is what america knew america with any brains knew exists Exactly the corner that the administration. But look at that arch on his back, though. But I mean, you got to give him credit. I'm talking about this guy. I'm talking about the point. Uh, let's let's move on to the Zuckerberg opinion. story. Okay. Mark Zuckerberg addresses families of victims of online child exploitive content after Senator presses him to apologize. They were uh, not holding back. It, it was not a fun day for him, and Zuck took it. So uh, here we go. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin pushed for the pa- uh, passage of bills, including the STOP, CSAM Act, SHIELD Act, and Kids Online Safety Act, stating parents are counting on us 
as uh, uh, much as they're counting on the industry to do the responsible thing. He challenged Mark Zuckerberg's assertion that social media impart, impact on mental health, saying they change right in front of my eyes. They are mental health consequences that come from the abuse of this right. They have access to technology during the Senate hearing. Texio facing scrutiny. Josh Hawley pressed Mark to apologize to the families online, child exploitation families that were behind him, leading Zuck saying, I'm sorry for everything you have all been through. No one should go through the things that your families have suffered. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse criticized platform saying, as a collective, your platform really suck at policing themselves and called for revising Section 230. Can you play the clip where Holly makes him stand up and apologize to the people behind him? Go ahead, Rob. Anybody, you haven't that's compensated a single not, victim. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I've, Would I'm, you like to do so now? Well, they're here. I, I You're on national this. television. Would you like now to him. apologize to the victims who have been harmed Josh by your Show Holly's them the pictures. Yeah. Wow, Would you like to apologize up. for what you've done to these good people? This is admitting guilt, though, huh? This is saying, like, okay, we're wrong. What do you think about him doing it? I kind of two things, but I respect I, I respect accountability. Number one and number two. On the flip side, now that's it, you're accepting the guilt. So when they, when Kali's like, uh, can these people sue you now? And that's that's going to be that's going to help the the lawsuit one hundred percent. He had to do it. Have to. they made him do it? He didn't have any way out. You know, if he would have done it on his own, looked at the families and said, I am so sorry and I will do everything in my power to improve security that we will stop this from happening again. They made him do it. That's why he did it. He had no other option. So this whole theater, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm just going to look now and everybody's clapping. Save your claps. Yeah. He had to do it. Mm -hmm. What if he didn't do it? Look, what, is, but actually think about it. What if he didn't do it? That, that would have looked horrible. That would, yeah. no, Pat, it, I don't think there's absolutely no way. No he, way. How does he, he do it? it? If he did it, there would have been booze. They would have been. They would have kicked people out because at that moment you. Let have me let to. me ask this question. Do you think his lawyers prepped him to say one of them could ask you to stand up and apologize to the kids behind you? I don't know. And if they no. do ask, or do you think they didn't prep him and he did it himself? I don't think there was no prep. Okay. I, I think, I think no it was prep. off this the This was cup. such a surprise. It was a surprise, but again, and again, I kind of respect that he, he actually, I've never do seen. Do you think there was a, do you think there was a prep? Uh, I don't think there was a prep, but I think he reacted the way he had to react because I think there was a lot of prep yeah. for this. There always is. Look, he's been in front of Congress several times, going back to Cambridge Analytics. It has not been a good three years in front of Congress at any moment for uh, Facebook. And what he is about to face, what they have got in their hand is acts, the Something Act, the Shield Act. Those are called economic sanctions. If, if he was an international country, these would be called economic sanctions. He is about to be forced to do everything in his power to make filters. They are yep. about to be forced to build tools that will take deep fakes off and take sexploitation and, and revenge porn off. They are about to be forced to moderate this. And there are states that have things on the books that are coming right now, Pat, that are saying that if you're under 16, you can't have a social media account. They are facing it. And what sucks is that he's in front of Congress. He's saying it like this when on the other side of this country in New York, they had one of the biggest days ever mm. for the stock of the company. Well, you talked about, by the way, let, let me let me just if I may, I want to just say what a few other people said. Then I want to get some reaction from you. Marsha Blackburn said. You know, these kids in the back were wearing a shirt saying I'm worth more than $270. I don't know if you guys saw that or not. Facebook puts $270, the lifetime value of every teenage account on Facebook. 
That's oh. their lifetime value. So they were wearing shirts on the back wow. saying, I'm worth more than 270. Here's, a, here, here's the other stat that uh, she talked about. Every two minutes, a child is bought and sold in America. Marsha Blackburn, let me continue. Kennedy, you know, Kennedy with the drawl and the yeah, accent, the uh, way he talks. John he says, Kennedy he says, Louisiana. You're no longer companies. You're countries. Yeah. Virtual governments yeah. is what we call it, right? You're no longer companies. You're countries. He continues. We know we're in recession when Google has to let go of 25 members of Congress. What a line. Wow. What a line. Wow. He says, we know we're in recession when Google has to let go of 25 members of Congress. And then Holly does what he does. And on the stats with Holly, it was interesting because he talks about a study that was done by Facebook. You know what the study was? Instagram makes life worse for teenage girls. One out of every three girl. Instagram makes their life worse. A study done by Instagram and Facebook that he kept asking him about. And then there's another stat that came up saying 37% of teenage girls ages 13 to 15 were exposed to unwanted nude pics. 37% of teenage girls ages 13 to 15 were exposed to unwanted nude pics. Now, all this stuff that's taking place, you know how they're protected. Section 230. Section 230. Yeah. Which, by the way, now we're talking about the problem. I want to talk about solutions. You know, I started an organization called Act mm -hmm. for America. Mm -hmm. It's the largest grassroots conservative movement in the country. We have helped pass 220 bills in Congress at the federal level and the state level. Part of those that we are working on, we, we work with members of Congress. We introduce bills in Congress. We're working on Section 230 to break it up, to change the laws. We're working on the SHIELD Act. We want people, if you are interested in making a difference for the country, because we can sit here and we can discuss issues and the problems that we are facing. But unless people start becoming more engaged in putting pressure on their member of Congress to make the right thing, when a constituent's email a member of Congress, it takes it to a whole different level. Go to actforamerica.org right now. Click on Act Now. We have many campaigns on bills in Congress, social media bills included and start taking action. Actforamerica.org. Look how many people have taken action on our website. Over 164 million actions wow. through our website, emails Very and phone impressive. calls to Congress. Yeah. Half a million activists on the ground. We need to update the 210 bills passed. But here's the important reason why people need to call their member of Congress when, when they're notified about issues. By the way, sign up to our action alert so you can be notified when there are bills coming down for a vote. We have a whole uh, Act Now campaign prepared. And people tell me, why should I call my member of Congress, Brigitte? My voice is nothing. My senator needs to hear from 40 to 50,000 people before they do anything. Wrong. I have been working with Congress since 2002 when I started my organization, Act for America. And I ask them, how many people do you need to hear from to make an issue your top priority? And you will be shocked. On the federal level, 40 to 50 people. That's it. 40 to 50 people. And here is the science behind the numbers. They tally every email and every phone call and every letter. They believe if one person makes a phone call, he or she are representing 1,000 couch potatoes who feel the same way huh. but are too lazy to make a phone call or send an email, yet they vote on election day. That translates into 40 to 50,000 votes on election interesting. day. Interesting. 40 to 50. You only need that 40 to 50. Or, or, that can make or break an election on the state level, 
12 to 15. Oh, wow. People don't know that. Now, here's what happens on our side. Our side, the right, they listen to podcasts. They listen to talk radio. They show up to conferences. They are educated. By golly, they are educated beyond their ears. They know, you know, one mile long deep about an issue on a topic and information, but they do not know what to do about it. They right. are frustrated. They don't know what to do. On the left, you stop a 22-year-old nitwit calling himself a socialist, and you tell them, tell me, why are you a socialist? They cannot even answer you why they're socialist, but they're engaged. What happens on our side, our people don't call their members of Congress, don't email them. I love that. That's great feedback. So you got state 12 to 15, federal 40 to 50. By the way, Section 250, uh, Section 230, 1996, was passed under uh, uh, Clinton, I believe, and it's 26 words. Really, if you type in Section 230, 26 words, that protects it. That we can read here together. There you go. 26 words right there. Zoom in a little bit. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. That's what protects mm-hmm. a lot of these guys. And by the way, at the same time, what this means is, you know, when Dennis Prager is going around saying, hey, YouTube is doing this to us. YouTube is silencing us. YouTube is doing that. Section 230 will protect it. And Dennis Prager's wife, Sue, was a lawyer. And they went out full-on public lawsuit. Nothing happened. Section 230. Section 230. Everybody, all the Congress, all the people that were calling out Zuck or TikTok folks, guess what they said? He says this right here, everything we say to you, he says, you know you're protected by Section 230. You know you're protected. Everybody said the same thing. So if somebody really wants to do something about this, Mm -hmm. it starts off with Section 230. It gives them immunity. There's no accountability. That's the word. It gives them immunity. It gives them immunity. And Pat, if you don't mind, because this this goes to that video that I was talking to you about. We can show this really, really fast. With all the TikTok, with all the stuff that he's doing, with all the brainwashing, it's all going after children. Adults, we don't yeah. we don't care. We go past it. All with children, it's all brainwashing. It's all sexualizing. It's all changing them. I saw a video the other day. It's going to really piss you guys off for anybody with kids that have here. This mother takes her 11-year-old daughter, okay, who's brainwashed with all this social media crap because she wants to give her puberty blockers, okay? Instead of they want to stop her from becoming a woman. Obviously, she learned this from watching social media, TikTok, and all of her friends. Please, this is gonna. Really, if you're a parent, this is gonna piss you off. Look at how creepy the mother is. This is the kid, and look at what the doctor's telling her to do. To, to she's 11 years old, by the way. Go ahead, Go ahead, show that. Dr. Olson had a decision. You are in the perfect place to start on blockers. And she promises what? to Watch. begin giving her estrogen, female hormones, in two years. Watch around 13. <laughs> That's what I think. Yes, you're not gonna develop breast buds on the blockers. But um, you're not going to wait until 16 to start. You know that, okay? Dude, what, are you gonna, watch. Josie watch received the blockers oh, as an look, implant look, in her arm. Look, what, so what are you doing? So with all the bravery she could muster, Josie held on tight as another chapter opened. Can I say one thing? How is this, as parents, uh, as parents, how is that not child abuse? How is that mother not in jail? How is that doctor doesn't lose her license and put in jail? This is what all that social media and all that bullshit that Zuckerberg and the, the, the yeah. CEO of TikTok, that snake, I don't trust him at all. I don't even know what the hell his name is. Look at what it's doing. And look at the parent, like a psychotic person. Tom, guys, if that doesn't piss you off, and that's happening more than often, yeah. Big Pharma is making money, and it's absolutely insane. Tom. And, that's and a- you know, it's good for parents to see this, conservative parents. They need the shock value from this to get off their couch and go to City Hall and go start talking to their elected officials to make a difference. Tom. I, 
this, I'm trying to connect the dots, and my mind was going from Facebook to this, and but this is horrifying for any. But but I think the reason why Vinny showed it is what is social media doing? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. exposing kids to this. Where did she get the idea of puberty blockers? Only from one place. Thank you. How would she even know about any of this stuff? Because someone on social media went viral and she wants to be like that person. Yeah. How did the mom think it's, an, it's a hero to do something like this? Because of social media companies allowing this to be available to them. By the way, you know what's the one thing Steve Jobs never gave to his kids? Oh, iPhone? iPhones. Period. No. Well, Period. Wait, wait a minute. The guy that started this smartphone doesn't do that for his own. And, and, and you know who else says that? A lot of people. 100%. A lot of people who yeah. sell these products, they don't have yeah. it for their kids. Go ahead, Tom. Well, I, and I'm on record with this. I, I believe this is child abuse. 100%. This is, it pissed it, me off, Tom. Okay. Um, this is not anything medical that child requires. If the child gets older and wants to dye their hair, pierce their lip, pierce their ears, or change their sex at age 18, if they want to be... Vinny, what I want to know is why this pisses you off. Okay, it pisses me off. A, it's an (laughs) 11-year-old. It's an 11-year-old kid that can't even decide whether to cross the street or is it safe to cross the street. You're shoving something inside this kid to stop it from becoming a girl? I am so glad I triggered Tom because Tom is losing his mind right now. Story out of time. Tom. 18 years old, you want to do it, do it. If you're, if you're an adult in this country, you can do anything you. you want, including commit suicide, which is horrifying. But it's the end. The suicide is the end result of mental health issues. And if they have the at age 18, if you want to go down some horrific path and you want to mutilate your body or do things, there is nothing to stop you in the United States from doing it. But when a parent is doing this is elective surgery. This is what you're doing to your child. This is elective surgery. This is an elective procedure. This is basically taking Lupron, look that drug up, America, and in, and putting it in her arm in a time release. Um, there are time release medications you can put in your arm. Women use birth control that's in a time release um, that is um, subdural, uh, you know, time release that sits in the, in the fatty tissue in your armpit. And you've got parents that are taking their kids and making a decision you're telling me that little girl had a complete cognition <laughs> of what was happening downstream uh, by the way tom who who is the most guilty there Here, here's a question for you tom the mom it, is the one guilty but if you go upstream you heard me talk about upstream yeah, downstream yeah, yeah. you go upstream and what in America has made that mom think and be more for yeah. her mind to well, think that this is okay. I think it's a multitude of things, by the way, and social media is where you're talking about with upstream. So the kid, do you remember how impressionable we were when we were 12, 13 years old? Remember when the song, um, uh, Chris Cross came around. What was the song that Chris Cross used to sing? Well, Make you want to jump. jump. Do you remember how they wore their pants? Backwards. Backwards. Yeah, so the, 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 the zipper. zipper was on the Dude, I remember being in sixth grade wearing my pants backwards. I, I got kicked out of school. When Vanilla Ice was doing it. Well, you know, thing. Chris Cross, they yeah. missed the bus one time. They mi- <laughs> and that's something they would never, never, never <laughs> do again. Yeah. BBD. Yeah. You know that. But you're so impressionable because why? You want to be cool. You want to be in the in crowd. And as you said before, when you dressed up as a trans person that yeah. came onto my show on the Sauzcast, yeah. you said trans is the new trend. <laughs> yeah. And it's trending. So the kids see it on social media. They want to be cool. They want to be in the cool crowd. It's now cool to be part of the LGBT crowd. Um, the parents, 
They care about the feelings more than facts. They care about appeasement more than actually discipline. And then what happens is, Rob, pull this article up if you can. I just sent it to you on Slack. Gen Z, 20 and under, let's say, they, they're being confused. They're seeing what they're seeing on social media. And if you just look at the stats, Gen Z is now more likely to identify as LGBTQ than vote Republican. Yeah. A third of, of, of Gen Z, I think it's 30%. Why, though? Why though? Because social it's trendy. Media. No, it's social media. It's on but social, it's social media. media. Yeah, it's again, it goes back to Specifically, social media. Specifically, TikTok. Yeah, Guys, we got like, I'd like to hit two more I'd stories. It's 1059. Okay. Like, I'll give you the final thoughts, and then we're going to the next story. Go for it. I blame also the doctors. That's exactly the where doctor, I was going to go. Right. She's like, I'm doctors, 13 years old, not 11 years no, old. She's the talking doctors about. should be held responsible. Look, at 26 years old, after I had two daughters, I wanted to do a procedure to ensure I will never have any more children again. Mm-hmm. The doctors, as a 26-year-old woman, refused to let me do that procedure until I was 31 years old wow. because they said, you could be 31 years old and then you decide you want another child. Wow. They wouldn't let Good me do that procedure. Yeah. I'm an adult, 26 years old. Now, if they can do it with me, why can't doctors say, wow. after 18 years old, you cannot I have that, that or they will be held responsible? That's my own well, Brigitte, can I, can I it's on that? your track record. You could have had Otherwise. a baby at 55. <laughs> By the way, final word on that. I was no going to get babies. the doctor's <laughs> phone number because <laughs> I, I way, know somebody needs to talk to them. Go ahead, way, Tom. In California, believe it or not, to, to, to your point, uh, there is regulations on the books that if you want to have a vasectomy, you have to have a consultation and wait 90 days. And I think any man that walks in this says, I'd like to have a vasectomy, just give it to him, right? But in California, seriously, you have to have a consultation with the doctor, and then you have to wait 90 days. So you have things that you can do immediately. Go to the nurse's office yeah. and get RU486, whatever it is, yeah. the the morning after pill, yeah. and which is a, get a, a harsh medical pill that your 15-year-old daughter can take without your permission, a, a heavy medication, that she can have it in five minutes after visiting the office. Next but story. It, yeah. Let's Dad go to the next story. On. Okay. All right. So, parents, if you're enraged, share the story with others. Rob, can you pull up? So, you know, uh, there's Tom, when you're t- moving this, just move it like this. Look, let me just show you. No, go like this. Can I you touch, touch this? this? Can you just do this Tom, with me one time? It. Just go like Tom, this. Not, not, not there, Tom. Not here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, here. Yeah. Let's practice three times. Yeah. Right there. No, it's That's this. it. I, I understand. Look, the paper Guys, this. And I'm telling you, don't and just go like this. It's because you use more paper than anybody else. Okay, next story. So, let's so check this out. I mean, listen. You, you know, you know when sometimes you know during COVID, some people got caught doing certain things on Zooms. We had the person on the podcast. It was actually very easy to talk to, and even was self-deprecating. Jeffrey Tubin, right? Tell when he got Tubin. caught. But as embarrassing as that is to get caught doing that while you're the legal analyst for CNN, I don't know what's more embarrassing than a governor being caught exposing his own policies while he's on a Zoom talking to others and saying, you guys will not believe what happened when I was at CBS. <laughs> target, target. Rob, is that target? A target, Rob. Please play this and, and, and enjoy this here. Go ahead and play this, Rob. He says, sir, uh, you dropped this. And he comes back, picks it up, and he's walking out. As we're checking out, the woman says, oh, he's just walking out. He's going to pay for that. I said, well, why are you stopping? She goes, Oh, the governor. <laughs> Sorry, that true story. And my mom's great. The governor lowered the threshold. There's no, there's no, there's no accountability. There's no, I said that's just not true. And she, I, she got, I said we have the tenth toughest, nine hundred fifty dollars, the tenth toughest in America. Toughest. She didn't know what I was talking about. By the way, it's the tenth toughest in America. So look it up. No one gives a damn about right. that. And I said it's just not true. There's still stop. I said well we don't stop them because of the governor. <laughs> and then she goes. She looks at me. 
twice and then she freaks out she calls everyone over wants to take photos i'm like no i'm not taking a photo we're in a conversation where's your manager how are you blaming the governor and it was you know 380 dollars later and i was like why am i spending 380 dollars good everyone can walk no shit good attitude idiot. hang on hang on, yeah. hang on. And then, by the way, he, he, he was hoping this wasn't being recorded. By the way, before we react to this, let me tell you what happened. And he claims the tent, you know, strict the state when it comes on to stuff like this. Denny's closes Oakland restaurant after 54 years amid soaring crime. Okay. Then right after that, I'll read you what happened with the next story. Mr. Newsom. <laughs> and so here we go. Denny's restaurant over the Oakland 54 years ago has closed due to concerns about the safety of staff and customers amid rising crime in the city. Crime statistics show a 37% increase in robbery. I wonder why. Mm. 24% increase in burglary. I wonder why. 45% rise in motor vehicle theft and a 21% increase in violent crimes over the past year. Oakland residents expressed mixed reactions to the closure with some appreciating the security escorts provided by Colarks for those traveling to and from the train station after dark. However, the closure of iconic businesses like Denny's has left a sense of sadness and concern amongst the residents. The closure of Denny's adds to the challenges faced by Oakland, where businesses like Subway, Starbucks, and In-N-Out have closed and experienced surge in criminal activity. And at the same time, you ready? Here's how politics works. Ayanna Presley, Rob, if you can pull this person's uh, uh, story up if you have this. Claims Walgreens is racist for closing stores. <laughs> Democratic Representative Ayanna Presley accuses Walgreens of racial and economic discrimination for closing a Roxbury pharmacy, stating when a Walgreens leaves a neighborhood, they disrupt the entire community and they take with them baby formula, diapers, asthma inhalers, life-saving medications, and of course jobs. These closures are not arbitrary and they're not innocent. They're life-threatening acts of racial and economic discrimination. That is why I joined Senator Markey and Warren to demand answers from Walgreens CEO. Why was there no community input, no adequate notice? Because it's called capitalism. They don't need to talk to you. It's their decision. No adequate re- notice to customers, no transition resources to prevent gaps in healthcare. Shame on you, Walgreens. Having a website and talking points about health equity and underserved communities is not enough. Wall Street is a multi-billion dollar corporation that needs to put their money where their mouth is. Is this the talk she's given, by the way? Can you just play this? Let's hear her say it, because I'm sure it's going to be more sentimental coming from her. Go ahead. Mr. Speaker, Walgreens is planning to close yet another pharmacy in the Massachusetts 7th. Why? This time on Warren Street in Roxbury, a community that is 85% black and Latino. Mm. This closure is a part of a larger trend of abandoning low-income communities like the previous closures in Mattapan (laughs) and Hyde Park, both in the Massachusetts 7th. When a Walgreens leaves a neighborhood, they disrupt the entire community and and they take with them baby formula, diapers, asthma inhalers, life-saving medications, and, of course, jobs. These closures are not arbitrary, and they are not innocent. They are life-threatening acts of racial and economic discrimination. That is why I joined with Senator Markey and Warren to demand answers from Walgreens CEO. Why was there no community input, no adequate notice to customers, and no transition resources to prevent gaps in health care? Shame on you, Walgreens. Having a website with talking points about health equity and underserved communities is you not can enough. Right you can't. You cannot. Wait, 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 wait. By the way, you can't make this up. Can I be You're the CEO? You're racist. You are racist for not leaving it open so p- minorities could steal shit 
Like, how dare you? How and then there you? is nothing left on the shelf. That's what There's I'm saying. There's nothing left to steal. But, how, but so it's racist. Would... It's racist. If I'm the CEO of Walgreens, I can just say, um, you called me racist. You, you mispronounced rational. Um, basically, <laughs> what happened here is we had too much community input. We had plenty of community That's input. Right. And you're right. There were things that were that were going into the community for free because we were being robbed. So I hate to say it to you, but there was plenty of community input going going on here and that's what's resulted in this you want to you want to work with your community you got to support me i'm trying to operate a store that's safe for my people my staff safe for you you got to speak up community rather than defund the police why don't you help us out so that we can operate a safe store that's available for you to get the things you need because i'm being robbed blind my staff was unsafe and you know what you know what i'm just Done. How do I do this? I can't profitably but, do it. The brother, did she give one of these speeches to I like joined, the city? Uh, bye bye. I joined Warren. Guess who? Elizabeth. There's Liz. Yeah. Well, it, it just further proves, you know, shout out to Bassem Youssef being called racist as the most watered down nothing burger of a statement these yeah. days. Everything's racist. Everything's racist. Listen, there's a part of her that I actually empathize with because there's cause and effect. The effect is Walgreens is leaving the community. And genuinely, the people of this community won't have baby formula. They won't have diapers. They won't have things to buy for their family. They need this. They won't have jobs for the community. What she gets wrong is the cause of it. The cause isn't racism. The cause is theft. Or the cause is basically zero profitability or losing money and basically bad policies. We've all been to Walgreens or CVS and everything's locked up on the shelf. Yeah. The razors, the condoms, unfortunately. Yeah. The um <laughs> you don't even just everything. You know, like you know what those like, are. you know what one of those okay, things is, buddy. All right. But like <laughs> the medicine out there, anything over ten dollars, twenty dollars is locked up. You've seen this thing before. So I wish even the toothpaste right here, if Walgreens actually wanted to stay in place, like I don't want to see a, a thing like Walgreens or CVS leave the neighborhood because what's going to come in there and replace it? A gun store, a liquor store, a cash checking store. So basically we know what's going to open up there or just like shitty food. So I wish they would stay there and basically do a uh, do something to basically lock up what is ever whatever is expensive. But it's just it's tragic to see what's happening here in their communities because I think that this woman does have empathy. I think she is basically she wants the best for her community, but she's playing the victim rather than actually basically trying to figure but, out. But, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You think she wants the best for her community? You really believe that? You really believe that? Okay, let's play that card. I, I, I would assume okay. that so she's not some... If you want the best yeah. for your community, one of the toughest things you have to do with your community is to also talk about what things you're responsible for. Guy asked me a question on my neck. says, hey, something happened with my relationship uh, it, 50, 10 years ago when my girl and I were getting married and, you know, I did this and that. But, you know, since then... You know, uh, we have two kids and she calls me a loser and she calls me this and she calls me that and she calls me this and I'm just sick of it and she's my number one enemy. I said, okay. So I said, look, I can tell you from based on what you just told me, I don't have context. It's very easy for me to just defend you and say, oh, it's, oh well, you know what? You should leave that bitch. Uh -huh. So no, I said, bro, what did you do? How are you responsible? How are you causing this? What are you saying? What challenge are you giving them? What excuse have you, you know, what did you do yourself as somebody that you lost that respect from your wife? Why is that? 
what, 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 made, what made her think she's okay to talk to you that way? Maybe you did something to prompt that. So what, that's what leaders do. Leaders talk directly to you and say, no, you got to get your act together. Yesterday we're on a flight. I'm so proud of Vinny. Vinny, yesterday we're on a flight. We had an emotional moment on the flight together, okay? And he's showing me something. Rob, I'm going to send this to you. I wasn't planning on showing this to you, but I'm going to send it to you. If you can go to my Twitter account, go to my Twitter account. Can you make that bigger, Rob? This is on a flight yesterday. He shows me something. I said, I want to make a video of this, and I want to play this. Go ahead and play this. Just saw something I have to share with you. Vinny, can you show me what you just showed me right now? This is my app, I Am Sober. What does that say? You haven't had alcohol for eight months and one day? Eight months and one day. No joke. 100%. How you feel? I feel fantastic. Why'd you make the decision? I just body, mind, soul, going to church and then getting drunk and then being hung over for days. I'm not gonna lie, being hung over in front of the camera, it, I just, that was it. One day I just saw myself in the mirror and I was hung over and I was like, I'm done. How much has life changed? Night and day, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life because when you drink and you keep poisoning yourself, you keep having those depression and I was very, very depressed. Now I'm having genuine moments where I'm happy and I feel good and joyful Freaking awesome. and I'm never going back. Okay, so I can love you, it. Can you pause that? All right, so, since Vinny's done that, Vinny's had three, four, five clips of making fun of everybody in the building, including myself coming up to him saying, hey, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. That video's got 100 million views. Vinny's got so much stuff that's gone viral on Instagram. It's absolutely insane. My kids love this guy. He's family to them. Everybody here loves him. When they see Vinny in the streets, they absolutely love Vinny. Why? Because the conversation was, dude, you really want to light it up and really explode in life? Change. Yeah. One day I go to church, I see him at church. I'm like, wait a minute, what is he doing at church? I didn't invite him. Aaron, shout out to you if you're watching this. Invited. He walks up on stage. Dylan wants to go right behind him. And then the next two weeks later, three weeks later, I think three Dylan weeks, decides Dylan, to give his life. And Dylan huge. wants him to walk up with him. He's like, hey, Vinny, can you walk with me? And Dylan, independently, at 10 years old, chooses to go up. What happens? Hey, if you think your best interest is the people, challenge your people to change. Challenge your people to stop acting like victims. Challenge your people to not have to decide to go steal. Why don't you go take a couple Udemy classes? Go read a couple business books. Change your identity. Yesterday, we're in San Antonio having this conversation with the audience, and I'm getting up there, and I'm giving a message and saying, you know, why do you, why do you think so much that you need the government to support you? How, how long? Maybe for a month. Maybe for two months. Maybe for three months. Your entire life, you want to rely on the government to take care of you and you want to sit there and say they racist organization shame on you for saying something like that you're taking the opportunity away from people to choose to become leaders no i don't think what you're doing is best for your people i think what you're doing is keeping them there you're not getting them to get out the whole concept about being poor is to get out of being poor the whole concept of you going through some shitty time in your life is so so, so you can change and make a decision and say i'm sick of this decision i'm making i, I don't support that mindset. So when you're saying, I think she has, you know, she really cares about her community and all this stuff, I'm not convinced. Because somebody who truly cares about their community, you know, there's some scripture that talks about the, 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 the wounds of a friend are, you know, like if a friend is giving you criticism is take it versus flattery from an enemy. Right. So many people just want like people to tell them what they want to hear. Don't fall for this trap. Don't fall for this person telling you what. And by the way, I guarantee you, whatever community she's talking about, I guarantee you, 95 percent of the people in that community are saying we did it. 
I guarantee you, 95% of that community disagrees with her. In the community that Walgreens shut down. I, I guarantee agree. you. They're sitting there saying, no, what is she talking about? We did this. How many more times do we need to go rob? The other day I saw such and such steal from this. The other day I saw such and such. How come we're not talking about that? Oh, because that's not popular. Oh, because that's not going to get you to get the people thinking that you're you know, sympathizing with them. No, it's embarrassing. The responsibility is on the people of the community. And the people in the community, when we grew up, your father could discipline me. Yep. Yeah. 100%. That's, how, that's what I know. In yeah. our community, your father can discipline me. And your father, your can, father can put me in my place. Yep. Yeah. Your father could come and say, what are you doing? Yep. In the community I grew up in, that's yeah. how it was. We protected and defended our community. You're acting out of line? Right. Hey, man, you don't do this kind of stuff. Go back home right. I don't want to see you on the street for five more seconds. Go straight to your apartment until I see you getting inside. We're missing that today. And by the way, there's still people out there, but there's too many people like this trying to recognize victims. Oh, they're racist. They're descendant. Other people want to follow suit and, and give her more of a platform what she's saying. No, I fully disagree. Good for Walgreens for shutting down. To all the other businesses that in your community you're being robbed, you're being taken advantage of, they're destroying your community, they don't appreciate you working 80 hours a week risking your 401k, your life savings, to open up a small little shop, either get involved in politics, get louder, change or leave and go to another place that's going to appreciate you having a small business like the state of Florida, like the state of Texas, like the state of Tennessee, like many great states in America that value capitalists and entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, some of these clowns in these left states don't appreciate you. Unfortunately, they don't. Find a place that they value. The first time I moved to, Cal uh, to Texas, I couldn't believe the level of unreasonable hospitality and southern hospitality I was getting. Yes, sir. Can I get you this? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm like, that. California, sir, 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 would you like this? Would you like that? Yes, sir. There is pride in people that create businesses. Whoever the Walgreens founder is that created that business, salute to you. And whoever that chose to close that place down because they don't respect your business, good for you as well. To the community that's pissed off about Walgreens shutting down, call her ass out. Yep. Call right. her out. That's right. Don't blame Walgreens out. Call her out because Walgreens has no problem being in your community and, and taking care of all the clients there. They genuinely want to do that. But if they're losing money and they're being robbed and their employees are being held at gun help, yeah, they have to shut down and protect the customers and their employees. What a pathetic argument that's being made by some people like this. No, I mean, listen, the last thing I'm going to do is defend Ayanna Presley. That's just not, that is not my doctrine. But there's a reason that she's been continually voted into office since 2010. Because the hardest thing to do is exactly what you're saying. Take personal responsibility, self-governance, personal finance, self-esteem. It starts with you. It starts with you looking in the mirror. But a lot of times people want to play the victim and they want to do the victim attractive. card and they want to play the race card, but they don't want to look in the mirror and say, you need to read books. You need to work out. You need to improve. You need to get to school. You need to do that. That's you know, exactly what you need oh, to do. But she's going to start playing the victim card. Yeah. And unfortunately, people fall for it. That's why she's continually elected. That's why Rashida Tlaib is continually elected. Ilhan Omar, AOC. Because yeah. it's easier to blame the government or it's easier to blame corporations to look in the mirror and say, I got to do something with my life. No, you can't speak out of both yeah. sides of your mouth. And Elizabeth Warren and her, and, and does so. And you, you, you hear things like this. And if Walgreens had five different locations in the city and they were making tremendous profits, then they're bad because they're a corporate entity making profits. They should pay their people more. So which way, which way do you want to argue this thing? But, but her, you know, Nothing comes down to personal accountability. No, nothing comes down to, to doing something for your community and standing up and being a leader in the community. 
And, and that's where this starts. And this isn't leadership. This is encouraging people to stay down and cower behind you while you just plead at, for the, the continuance of the, of the victim message. But I'm, I'm convinced Americans or a majority of Americans— uh, 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 are not are not going to fall for this. I, I agree with it. you. Yeah. You look at you look at those communities in Minneapolis. You look at in Portland. You don't find the majority of them down there that were happy about defund the police and what happened to their communities. <laughs> you have them saying, "What the f has happened here? Yeah. We want it back." And when yeah. the election came up, what did Portland and Minneapolis do? Refund the police. Yeah. 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 So, by the way, remember a few months ago, last year when they're like, "UPS has given a forty nine percent raise to da 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 da." You say, like, oh, "What's wrong with that?" What's wrong with people making $120,000 driving into, you know how hard that job is? I said, yeah, listen, why don't we raise it to, they were making 50 bucks an hour. If you remember, we were yeah, talking about, they went to exactly. 50 bucks an hour working at UPS, right? I said, by the way, take it to 200 bucks an hour. Why stop at 50? Let's go to 400 bucks an hour. But yeah. guess what? $800,000 you know, a year. Do you know what's going to happen? If you remember how the reaction was on the clip, I know you'll remember this. Yeah. I said, they're going to fire many of you. Yeah. So, <laughs> great. Awesome. Yeah. Give the raise. It's like, <laughs> no, they're not. They're going to no problem. UPS, folks, <laughs> to cut 12,000 wow. jobs and mandate return to office five days a week. Because when you do a strike and you ask to get paid 50 bucks an hour, a company has to make profit. They got to fire some of you. 12,000 of you are going home without a job, wow. especially those that don't want to work five days a week. This is a Wall Street Journal story. So 12,000 jobs primarily targeting management staff and contract <laughs> workers with a focus on enhancing productivity amid business slowdown. CEO Carol Tome described this as part of their fit-to-serve strategy. What a great uh, uh, word, Tom. Fit-to-serve, <laughs> right? Fantastic. Nice. The company has managed that staff returned to office five days a week starting March 4th. This decision aligns with efforts to address concerns, raising during uh, contentious uh, labor negotiations where frontline workers resented in-person office, da, 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 da. UPS financial results serve as an economic barometer, and the company is facing challenges from lower parcel volumes, increased costs, and a competition with smaller carriers. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> That's what happens. And by the way, this is probably not the end of it. More coming yep. very soon, yep. okay? Because 50 bucks an hour. I mean, just in the middle of the call, four of us applied for the job, right? We're like, are you hiring? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go tomorrow. I, I love us to, we'll have the time of our lives working together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What do you think when you see a story like this yourself? What, Brigitte, do, what do you yeah. think about this? Oh, I, this is crazy. Look, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a capitalist, you know. It's, when I look at my neighborhood right now, you don't see UPS trucks anymore. You see Amazon. Why? Because Amazon has the edge in business. They are on top of it. They deliver. Their employees are not complaining. They are not on strike. Everybody has business. Everybody Everybody is happy. They are delivering the product. UPS just dropped it, and they dropped it big time. And, you know, this is a good lesson. Like you said, fire the ones who are complaining, shrink your budget, and then, you know, let them understand how lucky they are to have a job. By the way, UPS drivers, $170,000 pay package, okay? Has some Amazon drivers thinking it's time to quit. They make 18 bucks an hour. That's thirty six grand a year. Wow. Can you, by the way, can you imagine UPS Union <laughs> one seventy? How long, Tom, will this last? Um, this meaning the union contract is a contract, so they're stuck with that. But guess what? You know what? Y unions don't understand. 
Once upon a time in this nation, there was a, a real purpose for unions, safety yeah. in the workplace, things like that. There, it was real. There were kids working at 12 years old in factories for 10-hour days. It was real. And the combination of OSHA and unions brought some sensibility and balance to the worker relationship. Now, you really don't need unions because you have armies of trial attorneys <laughs> that can attack companies for work, for individual you know uh, malfeasances or things that happen to workers but now the trickle down effect watch the trickle down effect amazon drivers unionize amazon drivers want that amazon prime is no longer available because they can't afford to give it to you for what is it, 176 bucks a year or whatever it is now yeah. and guess what now the cost of everything goes up there it comes pat it's inflationary you know, the, you want people to earn more money to earn a living. Yes. But if you arbitrarily strike to impose it in yeah. certain sectors, it's inflationary. And this is, the, this is the net result. That headline says it all. There's a lot of Amazon drivers. I bet you're sitting in garages someplace. What if like 300 of us here <laughs> in Cleveland just don't deliver tomorrow and we just get the un- local you know, UAW behind us and get on with this? Adam. If no, if they're looking at what uh, what was the the title of that headline again? Is that they're looking at some Amazon employees making eighteen dollars an hour looking at the UPS yeah. uh, pay package and thinking it's time to quit? Uh, yeah, it's not some; it's every single one of them. Yeah, Basically saying I'm making eighteen bucks an hour. Well, I, These guys are making close to a hundred bucks an hour. All the English. Uh, let me go do this. So, uh, Tom brings up a good point that, that at one point th- uh, there was a need. For being unionized, I don't know whether it was in the early 1900s or whatever, whatever year it was, Tom. But it was for workers' rights and workers' safety, and basically safety in the workplace. And somehow it has now become basically sort of an extension of socialism, an extension of like we had this conversation of like, where should we basically book the vault? Where should we book these things? It's like, well, if one's union, one's not. Well, yep. I don't want to deal with the union type stuff. Um, whether it's SAG, whether it's the Actors Union, what's going on in UAW up in Detroit and the Motor Last City. Last year was a year of strikes. Yeah. There was a year of, you know, investigation. Got Kaiser. Everybody was uh, doing strikes. Hollywood, writer, That's actor. Right. It was mm-hmm. constant. Yep. Right? And, you know, it, it, today's union, like Tom said, is very different than the union when it first got started. But the more and more you keep giving these guys, overpaying them, you can overpay. By the way, a Goldman Sachs. Okay, when you think about Goldman Sachs, how many financial advisors do you think they have? Most people think Goldman Sachs must have 30,000. Can you type in how many Goldman Sachs financial advisors there are? Goldman Sachs financial advisors. So somebody that manages your money. Can you uh, uh, search that, Rob? Financial advisors. What's the number? If you can look it up. Total financial advice. Okay. Uh, uh, 2,400. How many? Is that right? 2,400. 2400. Investment Management Vision has a whole of team of 2,400 financial services. Okay, how many? 2,400. Do you know how many Morgan Stanley has? Probably 13,000. Do you know how many Edward Jones has? Probably 50,000. You know how many, guess what? Goldman only has 2,400, and they're managing accounts to be a client with, okay, which one is that? Morgan Stanley, 16,000. Wow. Okay. By the way, keep searching the new Edward Jones real quick. Well, you, you know Goldman's what the uh, minimum is you know, probably a lot higher than these guys. You know what Goldman's minimum is to be with Goldman? Ten million. million. Yeah. Ten million. Ten million too. Your minimum minimum to be a client of Goldman is ten million. What's the point here? Ed, you know, UPS can can choose to pay that kind of money, 
and their drivers can show up in Rolls Royce and deliver your mail if they want to yeah, do that. That'd be nice. You know, can you imagine? You know, Rolls Royce top down. You know, <laughs> like a Bentley. Be, be yeah. careful, UPS guys are going to hear this. Yeah. 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 You need another strike, man. They come in an Escalade. Uh, ben David's house. Nah, that package just got lost in the mail. Have you seen the private cars? Like it drives up in your driveway, and literally the whole back seat is full of those little boxes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen it. So yeah. the guy pulls up in yeah. a, Bentley. a Bentley's like, here you go. Yeah. So what's but but. But the point is, listen, everything comes with a cost. You can't just sit there and say, yeah, give me a raise, give me a raise, give me a raise. Client's going to get a cost. Customer's going to get a yeah. cost. Or employees have to be let go and they keep the best ones, which is great. Maybe it's a great strategy they're taking and totally fine. If you're great as a 170, they're going to keep you. If you suck, you're the first to go. So just make sure you're one of the best at the 170 or else they're probably not going to keep you. Let's go to the last story and wrap up. Uh, so on the board of Vinny. There's an attack on these cops and these Venezuela. I'll just, Rob, if you want to, uh, Vinny, why don't you prepare the story? And then, Rob, you can play the clip. Go ahead, Vinny. Okay. So, well, this isn't, this is the New York City. So, this, this, uh, this story right here. So, these are Venezuelan illegal migrants that are staying at a migrant shelter. They, be, so first of all, here, here's New York. And I said this before New York has fallen. Okay. As a New Yorker, and I'm going to get into why New York, I'm, New York is pissing me the hell off. These guys are in a migrant shelter, uh, besides crapping in front of people's houses, Tom, which you reported two weeks ago, now knocking on doors and begging people for money at their houses. They beat the shit out of a couple of NYPD cops and one of them is a lieutenant. Can we, can we play this clip, Pat? We play yeah, this? Go for it. Yeah. Go ahead. So there's no volume. Look at this. Kicking them in the head, which is attempted murder. By the way, this is attempted murder. When you kick somebody in the head on the ground, that could be considered attempted murder. Being the shit. Look at, look at other New Yorkers. Nobody's doing shit. Look at this. Beating up this cop. The guy on the floor is getting kicked in the head. Look. These guys aren't supposed to be in the country, guys. From Venezuela. Yep. Okay. How do we know who well, they look, are? Look, look, this guy doesn't know how to kick because he's a freaking <laughs> idiot. Stupid idiot. Okay. How, right. do we know, how do we know who they are, Ben? Because well, I, I, I watched the news, Adam, and I read the news. Now, I'm, uh, not, I'm not questioning no, it. I'm just asking so, how they well, found out who they well, are. Well, because they found out who they are because, well, New Yorkers, well, uh, yeah, Chris Rob, I sent you another one that doesn't have anything. So, by the way, they get arrested. They get released without bail. Okay, they get released. No money. They're raising their middle fingers and laughing in front of the cameras. Illegal. Like that's the one that I sent you, Rob. The last one. This is them coming out of jail. Look at this attitude because he knows he's untouchable. Look at this dude. Play this one. Is there audio or not? Yeah. Look! 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 At look! Look! He's raising his middle fingers. They're pausing because he's cussing in Spanish. What? Okay. So how you respect I don't speak English. Yeah, of course so you don't. I don't speak English. Yep. Walking free. I don't speak English. At least he's a Lakers fan. You speak English? No English? Yeah. Yeah, look, look, look. Just watch. Look at, look at the cockiness of this piece of... Oh, my God. I'm not going to... I'm going to hold it back. He's flipping the, the camera off. Flipping yeah. the camera off. Now, while this is going on, let me read this. Yeah, Kathy Hochul, who is the governor of New York, comes out and says the following. She says, you know, she suggests deporting migrants who beat cops. Maybe a good idea, right? I mean, just maybe a good idea. Here's New York. New Yorkers are losing their minds with this. New York Governor Kathy Hochul uh, suggested considering deportation for a group of migrants who were released on bail after attacking two police officers in Times Square. She stated, I think 
That's actually something that should be looked at. Despite her previous support for migrants and sanctuary city policies, Hochul emphasized the need to protect law enforcement officers, saying these, these are law enforcement officers who should never, under any circumstance, be subjected to physical assault. It's wrong on all counts, and I'm looking to judges and prosecutors to do the writing. Fantastic. Go ahead, uh, and, and, and Here's my thing, okay? Uh, your tax dollars, us, I'm talking to everybody out there. You, 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 you feed them, you house them, you provide medical care, you do education. They closed down schools in New York so illegals could go in there and sleep while the kids are staying at home. I would, Yo, New Yorkers, where are you at? Where is the outcry? These are New York City's finest NYPD officers. When the World Trade was burning and one of them fell, these guys were running into the the one that didn't fall, and they were sacrificing their lives to get people out. Now they're getting stomped out in the street. Nobody's saying nothing. Nobody gives a shit. And then they're released, and they're doing this. This is to you, America. This is, that's their attitude because Joe Biden and this administration, Pat, is doing this on purpose. Those are votes. And just to throw this in there, uh, what, what is this bill called? Oh, yeah, Democrats voted against a bill yesterday to... Uh, not to deport illegals that get arrested for drunk driving. These people are untouchable. They have more rights than you do, than we do in here. And my question is this. When is enough going to be enough? When, is, when are Americans going to say, like they're doing in Texas, the hell with this, bro? There's no more, like you said, all oh, the politicians and th- the hell with that shit. And New Yorkers, where are you at? Yeah. Where, where's the New Yorkers stepping up for New York? These assholes are beating the shit out of people and doing this in your face. I'm telling you right now, Pat, I swear to God, if I was there, I would have waited for them to come out of jail and I would have beat the shit out of all of them. That kicking and slipping in the face, I would have beat the shit out of every single one of these dudes. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about? What more are we going to give them? You know why? Because they're votes. Democrats love, they have to take care of their votes, their constituents. That's them. And I think it's bullshit. I'm actually ashamed. New Yorkers should have been beating the shit out of these guys when they came outside. They don't belong here. 59 Democrats voted with Republicans passing a bill to deport illegal immigrants who committed DUIs. 150 Democrats voted against the bill. 150 said, no, keep them here. You know what it says to me, though? It says 35 percent common sense is coming in. Common sense is coming in because their community is saying, listen, we're not with you on this. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Brigitte, thoughts on this? Oh, boy. Thank you for asking Brigitte on this, because as a legal immigrant who came to this country, we had to go through background check. You and I and your parents and my well, I don't have parents, me. I had to go through a background check to make sure I'm not a criminal. I don't have a crime on my record. I had to take needles, test blood tests to make sure I'm not bringing leprosy into the country, uh, 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 any skin diseases, tuberculosis into the country. And I hated needles. And I had to pay for these medical bills out of my pocket in order for me to get the green card. So can you imagine people like me? And by the way, after I got the green card, I had to study a two inch thick book written by the daughters of the American Revolution about America's history, our constitution, our judicial process. And I had to take an exam and pass in English a written and a a verbal exam about our constitution, our history, our judicial process, etc., and pass in order for me to become an American. By the time I became an American, I knew more about America's history than my own American husband did. And I worked so hard to 
earn the privilege of proving to my adopted yeah. country that I was worthy of the gamble you gambled on me to come here. I created That's businesses. I yeah. worked hard. I came to this country. I remember buying our first computer. We started our own business. We barely had any money. We bought one of those big things, $5,000 you put on your desk. And I, I had uh, one baby and pregnant with another one. I put a paper uh, at the university next to us. We'll type student papers for a dollar a page. Mm-hmm. And I would put my baby to sleep and I would stay up till two o'clock in the morning writing student papers so I can make $20 a week to buy groceries so we can support ourselves as we started our business. People like me and you and the millions of us who came to this country who worked so hard to prove ourselves, who stayed out of trouble, who did not commit a crime. I remember when I came here, my American husband said to me, he said, look, if the police stops you for a traffic ticket, you don't argue with the police. You don't say, oh, no, sir, I was not speeding 65 and a 35 mile an hour. You know, he said, you say, yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. You don't look at him. You give him this. I mean, this is what I come from. So how many immigrants like you and me right now are watching this baloney, this garbage and are livid? Can you see the smoke coming out of my ear? (laughs) And that's why I I created Act for America. Now, think about America not hope for America, not wish for America, not pray for America, but act for America. Now is the time for action. Go to our website, actforamerica.org. Sign up to get our alert. Stand with us and become engaged on the border issue. We have so many bills in Congress. We're I'll put on. the link in the chat and the, the comments. And just the last, well, just a question I'm going to ask you. What, what do you think happened to those uh, illegals that left the jail, no bail, and did this to America? Guess, oh. where, they, guess where they put them? right back into the shelter in New York, and who's watching them? And who's to say they're going to leave again and kill somebody this time? That's how, Let's go, New York. Keep it going. Uh, by the way, the, the insurance PHP, we have a lot of Venezuelans, a lot of them. And you know what kind of Venezuelans they are? They love America. The yeah. kind who yeah. love and swear by the ideas of America and are so disappointed and hurt by what Maduro and many of the politicians to, uh, to what once was a great nation, richest country in South Central America, Venezuela. Now it's a whole different story. Anyways, um, great podcast, gang. It is Friday. It's weekend. Brigitte, thank you for coming out. This was fantastic. Thank you for having me. Of course. We're going to put the link to your book, Rob, as well as the link to Act Act for America.org. The most important thing. We're going to put that below as well. Maybe put that link above before the book, Rob. Yes, yes, yes. To go out there and check that out. And uh, you can find Brigitte all over social. She's not hard to find. But gang, have a great weekend. We will do this again next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Wait, 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 wait. Rob, Rob, don't finish it up. Don't finish it up. Don't finish it up. Um, I have one other thing to do. What? Okay? I have one other thing I got to do as well before we go up. Next Tuesday, we have a special podcast we're doing. Okay? Just so everybody knows this. Next Tuesday, uh, let me make sure. Uh, Rob, can you tell me the guests that we have? I want to make sure I promote it. Uh, 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 if you have the, it's a big one because we're, I think we're doing a live one next Tuesday that oh. we've been booking for a while. Tuesday. Did he confirm? Cause if it's a confirmed Rob, I, I want to announce this. If it's confirmed, is it confirmed? It's confirmed. It is confirmed. Okay. P- please. If, if we can do this, I don't even today know. happens to be a special day. It is Adam's birthday, Yay! buddy boy. Happy 
We got to sing for Adam. Uh, this is Adam's uh, birthday weekend. Let's go, baby. Adam officially turns 39 years old. 39, 39 for. You're so sweet. Yeah, my man. You got me good. Uh, we got to sing for Adam, guys. On three. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Adam. Happy birthday to you. My man. My man. My man. Thank you guys for the love. I appreciate it. BBD, I got to get married this weekend to win this bet. So we'll see what happens. Adam, make a wish. Nice. Oh, my goodness. Uh-oh. Love you guys. Thank you so much. What the hell's going on here, people? Enjoy these kids. Wow. Oh, wow. wow. Are these the Ferragamos you got, Ron DeSantis? Yeah, but the, those we have to return because this is your size. So, Thank you. Uh, Twelve and a half, ladies. Yeah, so anyways, Adam, great to uh, uh, watch you. The last uh, four years, semi-mature. It's been a, a great, very, great experience, very, very obviously. <laughs> but uh, looking forward to seeing you. By the way, in moderation. just so everybody knows, you will find Adam this weekend at every bar in Miami. Yep. He's bar hopping, <laughs> yeah. making sure he hits up 200 bars this weekend. Just go to one of them. Odds are you're going to run into him. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Anyways, PBD. happy Come birthday, Adam. Come say hi to me if you see me out there. All right. Thank you for all you do, PBD. Thank you for the PBD audience watching this. We love you. You have no idea how hard we work just to prepare this. Brigitte, we'd love to have you. This is Thank welcome you. to our world, but the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the friendship, the, I love you. the fights, the loves, the hugs, even Tom's awkward jokes, it's well, all worth it. Octopus joke, but it was an interesting <laughs> one. Killed it. Anyways, take care, everybody. You, Adam, happy birthday to you. We love you. Future looks bright, guys. Take care. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. Bye. -bye, bye, -bye. bye.